Welcome back to Give Me Those Star Wars, a show that very much still exists on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and I'm back because it's been six months since I discussed the galaxy far, far away, and that six months is just too long for my new guest. You've heard him on this podcast before. He has also appeared on Cheerscast, Pod Dylan, Film and Water, and most recently on Fire and Water Records, where we discussed Van Halen. Please welcome back to the show, Omar Yudin. What's up, man? You can't get rid of me. You have to stick a fork in me. You can't, you can't let up until I'm six feet in the ground, my friend. I will always come back to this <laughs> podcast network. Uh, so good, good to have that warning. Uh, even though it has been half a year, you were just on this podcast on episode 35. And then we talked about our state of the union for Star Wars. Not just the brand, but for our fandom almost as much as anything. Um, on that episode, I previewed that I wanted to do a show in the future where I had some distance and that really kind of examined the positive elements of the new movies. In essence, finding my joy again, which is kind of the mantra of this network. But Omar, you were really pushing for this episode at this time. So why is that? Why did you want to do another Star Wars show now? Sure. I think part of that was picking up on where your headspace was. Um, going back in the last episode and the discussion of sort of the macro state of the universe and like I think the episode you had done directly before that where you had sort of pulled out into, you know, the larger network of a past podcast guests to talk about where things stood. I um, find myself, you know, and I, I've been through this ad nauseum with you on the podcast before, but I just kind of find myself as like a, a one of the singular cheerleaders for you know, the new era. And I want to sort of hold my coalition of fans together, um, <laughs> you know, because I want to keep this thing going. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we are just in a very uncertain time, uh, you know, logistically, politically, but like specific to our hobbies, like culturally and cinematically, you know, like I think what's been going on with COVID the last, you know, seven or eight or nine months. God, I can't even remember how long it's been. I do know that we were stuck in quarantine. When we did the last podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but I do think that, you know, there are just uh, from a, a global standpoint, there are just a lot of macro trends on the culture that are going to severely affect how we consume content. And like, especially with the Star Wars project in a little bit of flux before COVID hit in terms of, you know, the, the higher ups thinking, OK, what's our next move? Are we going to go all in, you know, on sort of the television properties? Are we going to, you know, like uh, cannibalize some stuff? Are we going to like stick with the film project, maybe give some time? for those film projects to breathe. And, you know, like COVID aside, IRR, I had already been sort of on the ledge, like really, really worried about what was going to happen next. Really, you know, happy to have the television projects go forward, but really just wanting to continue to invest in the movies. Cause I think these five Disney movies have shown that like, there's a lot of great potential there. I wanted to push that through, but like with COVID and with like everyone's attitude towards Star Wars, just sort of being at a standstill, maybe even the leadership of Lucasfilm, you know, at a standstill moment right now. I just am looking at my my own mission here is like checking in with my friends, making sure they're sort of, you know, enthusiastic about like, you know, checking where their headspaces are in terms of how they're feeling about stories. And especially with you and this podcast, because I know that this podcast 
you know, for reasons logistical and, you know, for your own interest and everything, it can lie dormant a little while. And I just kind of view the view my job as um, not just the circuit breaker uh, of interest, but also just kind of like the, the refresher, just to shake things up and say, okay, we're still here. Where are you at right now? Especially in light of you wanting to go back and revisit the Disney movies in light of our last conversation. So I just kind of want to shake up the mouse uh, and make sure that like, you know, the, the we're still there, we're still going and that we're still relatively enthusiastic about Star Wars. Cause like, I really am. I always have been. That's never wavered. If anything, the Disney era has like supercharged my interest in the property going forward. And I just want to, yeah, kind of hold my, my fellow fan, my fellow, my coalition of fellow fans together. Yeah, and I mean, my enthusiasm, my excitement for Star Wars, it, you know, it was, it was, it was intrigued, but I wasn't necessarily in, in a happy place when we talked about this in the first half of the, this, whatever wretched year we've been having, and and then it just kind of waned. Even though you know, during COVID, my wife, you know, she she finished watching the Clone Wars animated series, and I rewatched parts of that, and then mm-hmm. we've been going through uh, the Rebels TV series. And it, all along, I've known that they were going to be bring back Mandalorian season two. So those things have kind of kept me, you know, thinking about Star Wars from time to time. Mm-hmm. But I was not enthusiastic about doing that rewatch. I knew I, I was I was putting off this episode because I was like, before we start talking about this show again, and before we rank all of the Star Wars episodes, which for those of you listening, that is going to be one of the centerpieces for this episode. I'm going to give you my official ranking of the 11 theatrical releases. Sorry, we're not counting the Clone Wars animated movie or the much beloved Ewok Adventures movies. But I knew in order to do that ranking, I needed to watch the five Disney ones again because mm-hmm. um, I knew where I stood with a classic trilogy and I knew where I stand with the prequels. Um, but I had to watch these again. And I just I wasn't looking forward to that in part because I knew it would all come down to the rise of Skywalker. And, you know, it's been almost a year now since that movie came out. And I remember when I saw that movie on opening night and I wasn't really excited to see it, but I kind of, I started just in like the the day or two before the movie came out, I was getting a little excited. And when I saw that movie, I remember posting on Facebook after that, that of the five new ones, the rise of Skywalker was my favorite. And I think at the time I was thinking because I felt like the force awakens and the last Jedi had sort of canceled each other out in terms of like plot and character, like advancement and everything. I was like, this is just, you know, it wasn't just a rehash of return of the Jedi. It was at least giving me semblances of new stuff. I liked some of the character dynamics and the interactions. I knew that the story plots were really forced and in some ways dumb, but it also gave me a kind of resolution, which I enjoyed. So I think maybe because I felt burned, I was like, well, okay, this was okay. So I, I think I, I had it first. Mm-hmm. And then I saw the movie again with my wife, like a week or two later. And I didn't like it the second time at all. Uh, like I was actively bored and, and looking at my watch and wondering if I could go to the bathroom or, or something like that. Um, it, that like that movie was sort of like the the, the real kind of like reaper scythe like hanging over this whole thing. I was like, you know, if if all of this hinges on the last one, I don't know how I'm going to be feeling about this one. And I, I might be upset, but I wanted to come back and I wanted to watch these again. Um, in part as a favor to you to do this episode, and, and I, knew, <laughs> I knew you know it, this wasn't going to work if it was all about ragging on these movies again and bitching out about these movies. I was like, if, if that was what I and ultimately came down to, this just this wouldn't happen. So I went, I watched them again with a specific eye towards finding my joy, finding the things that I loved about this property and these movies, the things that excited me the first time around. 
and I was very happy that that happened. That I actually I did the the experience. I actually I binged the five movies over like three or four days, and it was a much better experience than I expected. Um, I had a lot more fun watching them. Maybe because there was some distance. Maybe the emotional dependency was wasn't there. <laughs> I was a little bit just kind of like let let's see what happens. Um, but it was a, it was a much better experience overall watching these. So I, I, we're gonna, we're going to go through the five movies and kind of share our notes. But before we do that, was there anything else you wanted to say to kind of prep for this? Yeah, just you know, I I think I and some other people because when you gave your, I think you saw Rise of Skywalker before me, and I think you were favorably disposed toward it. And after I saw it, and you know, I I, I certainly liked it while identifying you know the the core problems with it, um, and we, which we can get into a little bit later. But I. I do feel like as I got more familiar with the movie, I, I remember like following up with you a couple of times and just being like, yeah, you're probably not going to like this movie as much as <laughs> you see it. Like, I remember like, you know, exchanging preliminary rankings with you of all the movies after Rise of Skywalker was fresh in your mind. And, you know, I just remember being like, yeah, that's going to drop like a stone in your rankings, yeah. which again is, is fine. You know, I think, I think where we might be sort of butting up against each other is that, and I'm curious to see, you know, whether your rewatch has changed this. But, you know, I, it seems like maybe one of the fundamental differences between me and a lot of fans is that, and, and I don't blame them for thinking this, it's a perfectly logical and reasonable and defensible position, is that, like, I am not necessarily judging each individual movie by how a subsequent movie sticks the landing mm-hmm. or, you know, makes the impression. Like, to me you know, a, a bad movie in as part of a trilogy doesn't retroactively make the other ones bad or like taint them somehow. Right. right. Um, and, and, you know, I, I would not have necessarily thought that five years ago or 10 years ago. So, so I think the, the logical thought pattern that goes into thinking, well, you know, how can the fellowship of the ring be any good if you hated the two towers? Cause like, they're just so intimately related. I, I get that. I do. I, I don't know whether it's just aging or just being able to sort of appreciate the discrete elements of movies in isolation from each other, even if they do, you know, relate together. Um, but I'm completely over that. So whatever issues I have with, you know, Rise of Skywalker and what it does to the, the plot logic of Last Jedi uh, and Force Awakens, I don't necessarily judge them that harshly. I judge them more and more in isolation. I totally respect that that might not be your your approach or someone else's approach, but not doing that, I think, allows me to sort of, you know, A, keep my my blood pressure steady but when watching them, but also, <laughs> you know, just really enjoy them for what they are and just understand that movie making is as much of it's a bloodless corporate exercise. It's also, there are a lot of moving parts. There are a lot of, like, different creative types that, like, have a vision, and I can just sort of appreciate what they're going for, even if, it's not always anyway. Yeah, you, that, so so that, that's what that's the larger comment I would make about that. But I am very eager to hear, you know, your impressions on on these rewatch of these five. Listen carefully. If you do exactly as I say, I can get you out of here. What? This is a rescue. I'm helping you escape. Can you fly a Tie Fighter? You with the resistance? What? No, no, no. I'm breaking you out. Can you fly a Tie Fighter? I can fly anything. Why? Why are you helping me? is the right thing to do you need a pilot i need a pilot we're gonna do this yeah all right so getting into them uh starting at the beginning 2015's the force awakens 
again, finding my joy, what did I like about this? I actually like a lot about this movie. Mm-hmm. First of all, and I've, I've said this since the first time the movie came out when I saw it opening night and I've like the first 45 minutes of this movie. Oh yeah. I like, it's like chef's kiss. I, I think is beautiful. It's magnificent yep. Yep. as the start to an adventure meeting Ray, Finn, BB eight, Poe, Kylo Ren, all of these characters. It's, it's not a carbon copy of the first Star Wars movie, but it does feel like that in the sense that meeting one character leads to how we meet the next character and how we, mm-hmm. and there is this MacGuffin, but it, the characters, there's, there's this distinct through line. There's this forward momentum and it's exciting. Um, we know who these characters are right away because even if they're not really deep at first, they are archetypes and that's what we met, had in the original Star Wars. Um, but it is a little bit ever so different than what we've seen before. Um, their coming together feels epic. It feels momentous. You know, it's it's a stormtrooper, but it's an actual stormtrooper that we can see, that we can identify with. And he's going rogue because he doesn't agree with it. He doesn't want to murder innocent people. He has this change of heart. So we want to follow this guy and this kid as he's, he's wandering through the desert. And there's this scavenger. And we don't know anything about her except we know that she's lonely and she dreams of ships and flying and getting off this planet or something and we know that she is selfless because she throws herself into danger and defends this poor little innocent droid that gets captured so right or you know it's like it's the classic hero building where they, they save the cat character that's what mm-hmm. happens when ray rescues bb8 and so we like these characters and we like them right away and they meet and then before you know it they're being chased by stormtroopers and tie fighters the whole thing culminates in seeing the Millennium Falcon again and when we actually see it and the music cues up and then they jump in and there's this soaring just like really fast chase through the desert and the wreckage of the Star Destroyers it looks great it looks timeless at, at this point the you know the movie could have been 32 years after Return of the Jedi it could have been 132 years later I don't yep. know but it just it feels it feels important. It feels like the start of a grand adventure. It is a glorious, glorious beginning to a movie and to a whole saga. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny. I wrote down in like going over my notes for how I was going to talk about this. I wrote down again, like those first 45 minutes establishing the new characters is about as perfect as you can, as you can have. Like, and I have to say, Ryan, like I, you know, I try to rein in my hyperbolic tendencies a little bit, but I actually think the force awakens is probably one of the best modern day blockbusters I've seen modern day. I'm saying like post 2000. Um, It's just kind of everything I want out of a modern day uh, blockbuster. I think it's just super well-made. It's super exciting. There is a professional clinical sheen to the filmmaking that never strips it of being exciting. You know, I, I, and I think the character development in that first, like, third, I mean, it is a lovely, like, like shot and chase. It's a lovely shot and chaser when Han Solo and Chewbacca show up. But, like, I didn't need them to, which is, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> that, that just speaks very beautifully. I don't mean that as a slam. I'm so happy they were there. Like, I'm, I'm so, I mean, it just took it to another level. But mm-hmm. I think that the character work that they did uh, in the first third of that movie was so on point. And they made me love all of those people from the moment, the op- you know, in the opening scene, from the moment, like, Poe Dameron looks at Kylo Ren, he's just like, so who talks first? You talk first, I talk first. <laughs> like, just, just wonderful in terms of table setting. And, like, just from a casting perspective, like, those four, you, they, like, they knocked it out of the park. 
They mm-hmm. knocked it out of the park. And I think that first 45 minutes that you reference, you know, it goes to what I like. One of the things I like best about the movie is the overall balance of new characters and a new plot with like a classic, with the classic story and mythology without ever getting that pr- proportion like out of whack. Um, right. You know, in, intuitively it is a very, very insane and bonkers idea to sideline Mark Hamill until the last like 45 seconds of the movie. Uh, and it was brilliant. Yeah. The Han and Chewie of it all, I, I'm of I'm of two minds because one of my favorite parts is seeing them again in that classic position when Han says we're home. I mean that was the that was the button on the the like the second teaser trailer that they had. Yeah. Um and Harrison Ford actually looks like he cares about the role. Like it's his first good performance in a long time. Um, yeah, first good performance of the twenty first century, I think. Yeah, yeah. However, like almost immediately after they show up, I think the movie grinds to a halt because their introduction is one of the first things where it doesn't feel like natural organic story progression. It's this exterior force that is jumping in and kind of infringing on the story. And then the whole thing with the Rathars, I don't like. That just that just felt like JJ or maybe Lawrence Kasdan was just like throwing stuff in because we needed to throw stuff in there and everything because we needed to pick up the pace again because once Han Chewie showed up, like the story stopped kind of in its tracks for a minute. However, I will say on that yeah. moment, like you're right. Like I think the and I think the 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 technological differences like kind of get in the way. That's one of the rare moments when it's just like, oh, we have a, like a, a set piece that we're gonna like that we're gonna show off. Um, mm-hmm. It was it was needless. I think you're right that it kind of ground things to a halt. I do think it was it was it did give for like the delightful moment where just Han is just like very frazzled and he's just like, this is not how I thought this day was going to go, which yeah. is just a very funny throwaway line. But yes, no, mm-hmm. I think your larger point is correct about that. Then when we get to the sort of Maz Kanata and her whole little tavern with all those cr- classic creatures, I love that whole setting. I really like Maz Kanata in this first movie. Uh, and the mm-hmm. Force Awakens as like sort of the wise old sage in like a, a kind of Yoda capacity, like could be the mentor, but that's really like she's not she's not the Yoda and everything. But she has this sort of wisdom and this sort of secret knowledge about the Force and all these things, but clearly isn't a Jedi or isn't from that path. Um, I thought the the way Lupita Nyong'o did the voice and and the visuals of her and everything, I just thought she was a a fascinating character that kind of opened up this world that made me want to know more about this character and her past and what was going on there. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I had no idea what to expect from her performance, but she, she fit into the world. And, and as much as, you know, Maz's like her brewery or whatever that was, that bar, I, I understand like there were a lot of aspects of this movie that were like conscious callbacks to what was happening, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and that's fine. I, I, I think I'm okay with that to a certain point. I think the, you know, uh, Chris Hayes on MSNBC called The Force Awakens a really great cover of a song you love. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, that that, that, that kind of makes sense. Um, yeah. And I think that having her be the sort of um, pathway voice when Ray start when the lightsaber calls out to Ray, mm-hmm. like that Maz could go from sort of like quirky, like saloon keeper to like someone who's seen it all to someone who is sort of is aware of the nature of the force is and and Ray's potential journey in it when her taking Ray's hand and saying like you know your journey lies ahead like all of that feels earned and you know just the other thing I would say in terms of Han Solo and Harrison Ford I would just quickly add that like I get what you're saying about the Raptors I would say in a very short amount of time and I think this is due to JJ and maybe the nostalgia but also for giving a damn and the strength of of uh, Boyega and Daisy Ridley 
I sensed an immediate rapport and connections between Han and um, and Ray and Finn. Where mm-hmm. if you step back and think about it, he wasn't with them that long. Especially Ray, like he was not with Ray that long. They did not actually share that much screen time. Like they shared getting together, getting the ship to uh, Maz's planet, um, sitting for a couple of minutes at the the bar, and then she ran. She got freaked out and ran away. And then, like, he, you know, the, the minute or two they were on screen when, like, he went to rescue her. But, like, I sense that connection. So, like, when he met his ultimate fate and, like, she's, like, gutted, there's none of that feels unearned. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that, how, how little screen time. And the whole Hans presence of it, I mean, this is going to be, uh, again, I, I, I think looking at the, the trilogy as a whole, and this is a point that has been made before, and I, I've talked about it, um, one of the errors in execution and you know, actually maybe in conception was the the desire by whether it was JJ or Kathleen Kennedy or, or Lucasfilm to bring back the original cast before it was too late. And of course, you know, we saw that Carrie Fisher did not survive this, this trilogy. But I think it, it did create this little sort of boomer versus millennial thing where whose story was this? Like you're you're not giving the new characters enough time because you have to you have to give these exits to these characters that we loved three decades earlier. And, you know, if, if it had just been Han and this had been his exit, fine, because the next two movies could have been all about the new characters, except no, then we still got to deal with Luke and we've still got to deal with Leia. And then we bring in Lando too. And then the emperor. And, and I was kind of thinking, I was like, why? Like, and I know that because the, the movies didn't come out chronologically necessarily in order, but I was even thinking, you know, that wouldn't have been an issue in the classic trilogy because even though Obi-Wan was our bridge, our link from the first two trilogies and everything, and he kind of plays that same role that Han does in this one, by the time Obi-Wan is killed off, like that was it from the original, you know, for, well, I, I should say from the prequel trilogy, you know, there weren't any other surviving threads that need to be tied off because for all intents and purposes, Anakin Skywalker is dead. We know that he's actually Darth Vader and he, so he's, but he's basically a, a new character. Padme and anybody else that we would have cared about is all gone. So if you were watching the movies in chronological order, you don't have that hang up of, of having to tie up other loose threads when you get to the new trilogy. Whereas I think their, their sentimental devotion to Han, Luke and Leia kind of became more of a hiccup for this new one. But yeah, it's, it's funny that you say that. And I think this is just one of those things where, again, we, we are just going to have to agree to sharply disagree because mm-hmm. I never, I mean, really one of the things I like most about the sequel trilogy of the many credible complaints that I heard about it, the one that has never resonated with me was that like they somehow got the balance wrong and like they had to spend too much time on legacy carrier, like characters. I actually thought the time spent on the legacy characters was great and necessary and appropriate because like, because they were part of serving the story of the newbies. Like if they were just dealing with them in isolation, I would understand more where that criticism was coming from. But like the, the chess pieces of like, like Han Solo and Luke, like are not acting in isolation from like Kylo Ren and Ray and their journey. You know what I mean? So like, Mm -hmm. I think of them as like smaller parts of the larger propulsive story of like our four main characters, but particularly Ray and Kylo Ren. So I never, that, that, you know, that, that uh, homeostasis never seemed out of whack for me. 
I, I thought Han Solo, you know, like I, I thought like, yes, he had his own demons and, you know, there was a painful isolation from Leia and Luke. But but again, that was because of, of Ben Solo. That was because mm-hmm. of Kylo Ren. It wasn't just some extraneous, like, you know, circumstance, uh, like a completely outside the context of the story. So as long as it's in the service of the larger story about the new characters, like I actually thought they got that balance uh, perfectly. Okay. Yeah, well. Um, getting to other things that I liked about The Force Awakens, um, John Williams came back with his score. I really, really in particular like Kylo Ren's theme. Um, mm-hmm. you, you hear it, it's like the, these powerful notes like dun, 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 dun. Yep. Like every time he enters or his ship comes into view. Yep. I really liked Kylo Ren as this new kind of young and bratty version of Darth Vader. Um, mm-hmm. Like is this young guy who is just a fanboy who thinks, who thinks he can be as bad as a Darth Vader, yep. but he's so volatile. He's yep. so entitled and quick to lash out and just like wreck shit, just like take his lightsaber out and destroy computer yep. banks and everything. I love that moment because it's like, clearly it's n- it's a different type of villain that we're not used to that we haven't seen before. And, yep, I, and I, I would just, say, I would say that's a tribute mainly to Adam driver's performance, because if mm-hmm. you think about it, there's not actually a lot on the page mm-hmm. um, for us to, for us to glean, you know, that, that we're supposed to understand that he's trying to almost play act in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's just not a lot there. And I think, what takes it over the top and what makes me think, oh, God, this is amazing, was that, you know, Driver is so gifted an actor yeah. that he was a- immediately able to make that connection for us. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, uh, I've mentioned this before, the lightsaber duel between Ray and, and Kylo Ren in the, in the woods, the snow-covered woods. I love that one. the blade and ignites it. You know, coming up, being our first real lightsaber duel since the prequels, and I was not overly fond of those. I infamously hate the duel between Anakin and Obi-Wan at the end of episode three Um, (laughs) to actually see basically immediately a sword fight that looks like it's well choreographed, but it doesn't look like a dance. Yeah. Um, And I'll have more, I'll have more to say about that, that lightsaber fight you reference when we do our, our lightsaber duel ranking, spoiler alert, we're going to do a lightsaber duel rankings. But what I will say is, you know, Ray and Daisy Ridley got some criticism for the way she fights um, not just the fact that, oh, this girl is, is so, oh, so powerful, but also like I saw some criticism of like the style with which she's like lunging with the blade. And I'm mm. just like, no, no, that's like a rough scavenger style. Like yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's so different and it's so like jarring. And like there's so much emotional resonance in the way that like uh, Ray fights that is like so like intoxicating from like a storytelling standpoint that it is so much more appealing than the very sterile, albeit exceptionally well choreographed, uh, lightsaber fights from the prequels. Mm-hmm. The last, like the little, the little hangups, little negatives that kind of like that that came up again on my rewatch is I don't like basically Star Killer Base as this super weapon as like Death Star, I guess three yeah. um, and even really like. This is one of those things we sort of, we've we've talked about it as as a cover song or as a remix that Mike Gillis called it. If you think of The Force Awakens as a remix, then yeah. you know these things in, in isolation. The for, the First Order looks fine in the new version. Then you know the new Apple version of the the Stormtroopers they look great. But if you're trying to keep a continuity, I just think this was a misstep. It was possibly one of the most substantive missteps of the sequels is yeah. just redressing the empire in a new polish because it instantly creates this confusion and this disconnect. Wait, I thought these guys were wiped out. How come they look so much more advanced? Like they are the superior power in the galaxy. 
what did we miss in the first, in the last 30 years? And we never get those questions answered. Um, and they, they, the subsequent movies treat them like you were not going to get an answer. So let's just move on. But that's always a hang up that I just feel like, you know, like narratively, structurally, the continuity, like if, if you want to give weight and a sense of closure and conclusion to return of the Jedi, if, if the heroes actually won, if that's what we're saying, then they need to be on top when this one starts and we need to see a growing insurgency at, with the Correct. first order as almost this yeah. ragtag kind of like underground militants terror cell type of thing. And yeah. not not an even better funded and superior empire. But it's well and I think I think that's absolutely right. And I think a lot of the thing one of the only main criticisms I have about this movie um and all the and this sequel trilogy, and it's something that like people a lot smarter than me have been able to articulate, including um, your wife, who who has been who was beating this drum from I think the moment she saw it and we talked about it, was just like the organizational hiccup is just so odd. It's like, wait, who's the establishment? Right. Okay, so <laughs> there's an establishment that's happening, and so there's a first order. So wait, is the first order like the a, a breakaway group? Is it the real group? What's happening? And then you're establishing a resistance, a resistance within this established republic. What's happening? Like it's just you know, even if it's just like a few lines in the crawl that could have mm-hmm. like. Could, that could have fixed this. It, it was it was a missed opportunity that led to a little bit of confusion. And it also, you know, sort of ended up contributing to this idea that like, you know, I think one of the other overarching criticisms of this movie and the trilogy is, and it doesn't make me really enjoy the, the sequel trilogy that much less, but I, you know, I am just kind of like, am I scared of these guys? You know, because, because really like we don't know much about Snoke. And, you know, the, the organizational hierarchy of, of the First Order is, is weird. And Kylo Ren is obviously like a bratty adolescent trying to figure stuff out. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, the one everlasting criticism I think that sticks is I am a little bit not sure about the stakes mm-hmm. um, of what's going on. And when you throw in yet another big star, you know, planet destroying machine, it just kind of starts to feel like very sterile. And you don't, you know, you, you're just... Yeah, so the macro aspect of the filmmaking and the the organizational stakes make it not as scary, and so we're relying on like the the characters conveying urgency and their acting and their dialogue, which I think they pull off. So I was right. still like super invested in what was going on, but like they could have done a little better job, like cable setting. Um, and I yeah, think that I, is mild, mildly unforgivable. Yeah, I had to I had to look up through like other other sources and everything how they kind of explain where the new Republic didn't want to become the empire. So they demilitarized, you know, yep. that, that was one of their concessions to make sure that they didn't just become a, a new, you know, a, a new generation of Palpatine's regime. So they didn't yep. have a standing military. And yep. the, when the first order rose up, you know, it was, it was sort of like a world war two parable where they were just like, they were making concessions and they were just like acceding, you know, certain territories to the first order in the name mm-hmm. of not f- having to fight another war. Mm-hmm. And it was Leia who was like, no, we can't, can't give them another inch and she yep. actually break away from the Republic and start this resistance. And when you hear all of that in context, it's like, well, you know, that actually sounds like kind of a dramatic storyline. I might've wanted to see that in a movie, but. And if you're not going to actually spend an entire movie on that, which I think would be a wonderful avenue for a movie, um, Disney, um, <laughs> spend five minutes on it in the force awakens. So I can, even if it's just like some clumsy expositional scene, whether it's in the opening crawl or like, you know, Leia explaining things like, you know, there's this scene where like she and Han are clumsily talking about how like their son turned to the dark side. 
And it's like so expositional and they never say his name and they keep saying our son. Like, and it's just like, you know, like this is a fairly easy concept that we could have all gleaned. Why didn't you spend any of that time actually talking about how the first order in the resistance came to be? Because I just think that, you know, I think that the old man, like the, the, at the beginning was just like the resistance was formed from blah, blah, blah. But it's just like, got to do a little more, just do a little more and we'll understand the stakes. Yeah. Yeah. But overall, I still, I like the movie. It is flawed, but, it, and I think it's, it works better in a vacuum than as a follow-up to Return of the Jedi. But I think this I is true of all three of those movies. I think yeah, all yeah. three of those movies are much, much better in a vacuum than as, you know, part of a continuity. As singular episodes a, rather than chapters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, but I've, I've gotten to the point where it bothers me less. And I would just say, you know, to put a pin on it in terms of like the feeling, the rush and the feeling that I had walking out of that theater, Star Wars was back was mm-hmm. back for me, back mm-hmm. in a big way. And like, you know, to put a pin on it, like those 45 minutes, those first 45 minutes that you're talking about and the amount of work that they did in those 45 minutes, they just led to the fact that like when Han Solo met his ultimate fate at the hands of his son, which is this big spoilery moment that everyone's talking about, like I'm watching that for the first time in the theater. And as soon as it happens, I was obviously sad and horrified, but like I actually said out loud, like as soon as the blade went through Han Solo, I actually found myself saying out loud, much to my embarrassment, Ray and Finn, get out of there. And that's <laughs> not something I would have said in the prequels. And that is a testament to the fact that they designed these characters and built them and made it, made me fall in love with them and made me be inve- fully emotionally invested in them. And after, you know, the prequel journey, I think that for me, what a, what a thing. And the fact that at the end of the movie, I was walking out, not so much focused on the legacy characters, happy that they were there, wondering what Luke had been up to. But like my thing was, oh, what's Ray up to? Who's Ray? Like where's she, you know, like what's going on with her? What's her next step? What's going to happen to Ray next? And how is Finn going to make his way back to her? That is a testament to how like professionally, lovingly the story was crafted. I, yes, that movie definitely made me care about Ray, Finn, BB-8, and Kylo Ren. Like I was ready yeah. for their next adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. However, the next movie that, that came out in 2016, <laughs> um, we, we took a side trip and we went back uh, with Rogue One, a Star Wars story. This is Rogue One calling any Alliance ships that can hear me. Is there anybody out there? This is Rogue One coming over. This is Admiral Radis, Rogue One. We hear you. We have the plans. They found the Death Star plans. They have to transmit them from their communications tower. You have to take down the shield gate. It's the only way they're going to get them through. Call up a hammerhead Corvette. I have an idea. And I, I've mentioned, I, 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 I argued with my brother about this back in episode 34, which was the big, uh, the, the, the big, uh, I, I guess, just the big episode. That's the, that's the yeah. one where I, I, yeah. I went through this whole insanity at Disney. Um, and, and Neil really, really likes Rogue One. And I, I had said... You know what? I, I don't as much because I'm not as invested in the characters. So mm-hmm. I watched it again, wondering if I could I could actually get some some connection to them. And I still really didn't. Um, there's okay. a lot in this movie that I do like. There's a lot in this movie that I like to watch. Mm-hmm. But I, it's just it's not really the characters. I'm not as invested in them. Like and I'll, so I'll just so going through some of like the 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 stuff like and some of this seems like just like kind of like incidental stuff but this is what i find my joy in um and part of it is really the u-wing fighter the the new the new vehicle Mm -hmm. that they have 
it's like this midway between a small transport like the Falcon and a Starfighter. It's kind of like somewhere in between. It's great looking. It's like a versatile troop dropship, like a Black Hawk helicopter. And mm-hmm. I love the way it's used so that you can have a bunch of characters, but it's not like a whole freighter and everything like that. It has this mm-hmm. clearly designed purpose, but it's small, it's removable and everything. And you can have them all in the back and, and just the way it's used. Like I saw that vehicle and I was like, yes, this is like, this reminds me of how excited I used to play with like mm-hmm. little B wing fighters and x-wings and all those things mm-hmm. this, new, this new ship is it just it made me excited to see something new like that i i think that the uh production design and the cinematography on rogue one are um outstanding yes uh i think that the they capture i mean they did this a little bit with force awakens like recapturing the grittiness mm-hmm. of um the star wars universe particularly on the side of the rebel slash resistance mm-hmm. um but, you know, you had a little bit more to work with in terms of, like, coming up with new stuff, even though very little, if any, of the new ships uh, from the sequel trilogy, like, stick in my mind, which is, you know, I guess it's a mark against it. But, you know, with the Rogue One, it's, like, that production design, like, when you go to, like, Yavin mm-hmm. and you see you see the ships yep. and you see, like, the, you know, the meeting halls and, like, sort of the, the, the gathering uh, with all the maps and everything with Mon Mothma – there is a lived-in quality to those sets and those ships that I absolutely dig. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they happen to, you know, and, and again, I, I try because this is Find Your Joy. I just don't want to bash the prequel movies too much. But I think that you know, you and I, there's a consensus that like there is a sometimes there's too clean a look, especially with the episode two and how it was purely digitally shot. Right. Um, right. The visual aesthetic of rogue one later on last jedi i think is the best example of this but the visual aesthetic of rogue one for what they were trying to capture is like almost perfect to me for how i imagine a rebooted disney star wars um would go and and i you know and and so i i get what you're saying about the thinly drawn characters i can't help you with that except Mm -hmm. to say that like i think i know from the get-go that they're disposable i think we know on some level they're ultimately mm-hmm. going to be disposable because of the way the battle ends the way the story goes you know there are really no surprises i mean is it a little weird that they all die was that was that something i was expecting no not necessarily but i think i was able to let go of that complaint because of a couple of things one i think the supporting characters were you know just just so wonderful like you know k2so and cheerio mm-hmm. and Bays, like they were just really wonderful. Like they provided like comic and emotional backbone to what was going on. And 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 the other trade off that I'm comfortable making it's for two reasons uh, with the thinly drawn nature of the characters. One is I, I think this movie, despite not being like directly connected to like the Skywalker Jedi mythology, I think this movie in its plot and in its aim kind of embodies the collective spirit of rebellion that epitomizes what I love about the star Wars movies. Oh yeah. Just a, it's, a, it's about hope. It's about being the, this as Poe says, Poe Dameron says being that spark that lights the fire. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing I like so much about it um, is that again, and this is why I excuse the thinly drawn nature of the characters is, you know, um, a, a, a political pundit, um, John Lovett over on pod save America. He's also a big star Wars aficionado. And something he said about rogue one, which is his favorite star Wars movie, like really stuck with me. He said, one of the reasons he loved it so much was, for the first time, really, you know, yeah, occasionally you get like Admiral Akbar saying, may the force be with us. But really, this was the first time that like the force was this democratized concept amongst people where it wasn't something that was purely like given to responsibility or lineage. Right. You know, whether it was like Chirrut, like throughout the movie and like his belief 
or like, you know, um, Jin's mom, Leela is just saying as she sets her off, like trust the force. Yeah. Like as she sets her off, like on an incredibly ostensibly dangerous journey to me, this is, you know, that, that statement really stuck with me that, you know, the, the underlying mythologies, you know, that, that, that have been given to us between Star Wars, this is the first time when it was just like, hey, we're the other guys. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not necessarily personally invested or have any like direct knowledge of how like the bloodlines and the lineage are going to be passed down from person to person, how they're going to be claimed, how they're going to be redeemed. We have our lives and we're fighting for a greater good. And we because of that, we believe in you know, this all in, you know, it basically encompasses the spirit of how Ben Kenobi and Yoda in the original trilogy described the force. And mm-hmm. there's something like very moving about how these characters believe in that spirit that for me kind of allows for, okay, you know, these are much more paper thin compared to like Darth Vader or Luke or Leia or Ray or Finn um, or Anakin. And I'm okay with that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, again, this is, it's a little bit disagreeing, but understanding where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, so, yeah, cause to kind of go through it, like, yeah, one of my big hiccup is I don't care about Jin and her dad or Cassian or Chirrut and Baze or Bodhi that much. Now I think they are all interesting enough that they could have been fleshed out except for Bodhi. I don't really think he, there's anything there, um, mm-hmm. but I think they could have been fleshed out, but the movie itself is so plot specific Mm-hmm. that it doesn't really allow for these characters to expand or, or do much on their own. Um, but it's, it's, so it's just, I, I don't know, part of, I think it's just like the, the structure, the organization of the movie didn't really give me that, that chance to connect with them other than very superficially being like, Oh yeah, that line was funny. Or that, you know, it's cool when he, you know, he does the blind Satoichi takedown of the, the, of the stormtroopers, you know, that moments like that. Yeah. Are fun. I going back again, like after the Ewing fight, like my second note was everything you said, the set dressing, the set design, like the lived in part of this world is second to none. Like it, it feels like they went back to 1977 and just gave it like a billion dollar budget. But mm-hmm. having that that world, like, yeah, like it, it's it might be my favorite movie to watch on mute. <laughs> like, is that, okay. if that made a sense or something like that? Um, it's a very uneven because that the first half when it's all meeting these characters and kind of meeting them one by one, going through them, um, I'm less interested. Once we get to the climactic battle, but once the battle of Scarif begins, it completely flips on me i i love the battle we'll get to it where it ranks among my favorite battles um but like the battle on the on the surface on the beaches with the rebels you know taking down and doing all their stunts um Mm -hmm. getting on the radios to come to confuse the 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 imperials and send them in the wrong Mm -hmm. direction that's Mm -hmm. all great once the space battle begins i love it i loved seeing the archival footage of red and gold leaders um and their whole thing um mixed in with the the new pilots and everything yes yes the the bombing runs Yes, yes, it looks so good. You know, just seeing that was one of those things that I always loved. I loved those big fleet battles, like the Battle of Endor, mm-hmm. and to see mm-hmm. that again, uh, yeah. it was it was just great. Um, I do I do like K two S O as a, as one of the characters um, I, because I've always been a big fan of the droids. I, I just like that that element, whether it was R two D two and and C three P O or R five D four or I G eighty eight, like the mm-hmm. toys. I love yep. playing with those. And so now we've had BB eight in the Force Awakens, and now K two S O. They yep. feel like they belong in this world, but they're not carbon copies of the ones that we've seen before. So it's just a great. 
uh, like a, a nice little addition. And K2 is a funny character. He's physically imposing, but has a very soft personality. And then just like the, the other things that I do, like um, there is another piece of music, actually not by John Williams. It's Michael Giacchino who did the score for this one. The mm-hmm. Imperial Suite um, is the name of the track it plays. It's not the, it's not the Imperial March, but the Imperial mm-hmm. Suite. Uh, mm-hmm. If you play that, it's just a great villain theme song. Like you could play that for any kind of villainous organization. Uh, I, <laughs> I definitely think it has that iconic level to it. I would, I would also, I would second all that. Uh, second, what you say about the Battle of Scarif, which oh, we'll get to it in our in our rankings. Um, but uh, you know, what I another thing I would say, and this is a bit more of a macro point that might have fit in better with um, our conversation from six or seven months ago. But I would say that like Throw One, I, I love this movie. I love this mm-hmm. movie, and I remember, you know, again when I left it, I, I I am way too active on Twitter in general. And one of the things I did um, was I sent a tweet in um, at the end of 2016 saying. After having seen Force Awakens and Rogue One, I'm here to say that like they're an evil company, but I am perfectly happy with Disney with Star Wars being <laughs> in the hands of Disney. No, like I I I felt that, and I, I my thing was I get that you know we were never going to be as emotionally invested in what was going on with Rogue One because of just the very nature of the plot and like how how three how two dimensional the characters were. But like if future Star Wars were like this, if they you know sort of leaned into nostalgia but also like did their own thing and made me laugh and and dazzled me with the special effects um, and hit me where it hurts with like, you know, how I felt about the mythology and everything like that, I would be perfectly happy. But what I will say about in terms of the, the, the over the macro filmmaking aspect of it is this, I wrote one, I think is a pretty good example of Disney giving notes and meddling and sort of behind the scenes mm-hmm. turmoil that probably worked. Like this is the system working. Like one of the big points I made to you last time was in, in, in sort of going after George Lucas for wanting complete creative control. One of my big thing was, Hey, you know, like I think George Lucas in making the prequels might've benefited from some Disney quality control, Yeah, you know? Um, And I think that, I I think that now there's a danger to that. I think sometimes that could go very wrong and we'll never know what happened with solo. And, you know, we're never going to completely know what happened with rise of Skywalker in terms of the levels of what was originally conceived versus what ended up happening. And, but it is clear, at least in both of those examples that, the end result was some type of compromise that just didn't completely end up working. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Rogue One, you know, we knew that there was behind this, a behind-the-scenes shakeup. We knew that there were reshoots. That we knew that there was some type of, like, editing and panicking from, like, the corporate overlords that, like, didn't never got out of hand. But it certainly probably made, you know, people like you and me a little bit suspicious of, of what was but, – but, like, honestly – the edits probably seemed, you know, were seemed restrained and appropriate. You know, I don't, I'm not one of those that necessarily thinks that like, oh, we need, we need to get Bail Organa in there. We need mm-hmm. to connect this up even more, you know, but like, it was fine. And like when he, he, he stepped in, that was an emotionally resonant moment. I, and that was a kind of callback that didn't beat me over the head. And like mm-hmm. ha- that last Darth Vader scene, which a lot of people love and I love as well. I feel like that's something that could, that was definitely the product of a, you know, corporate, Hey, we need to add this in, but it was as exciting as it was. It was still had like the, the panchee of like restraint to it. 
where it didn't end up overwhelming the entire movie. Yes, a lot of people walked out of the theater talking about it, but like it logically fit in with what they were trying to do. So like, I just think, again, I don't like companies. I don't like when businesses dabble in, you know, creativity. I think that hardly ever leads to like optimal results. But I think this is an example where they probably made it more polished and slightly more palatable to all of us. Yeah, I I did. It's total fan service and you can tell what part of the company inserted it into the movie, but the Darth Vader slaughtering of the rebels at the end is fun to watch. Yeah. Oh um, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, and it, it feels it's a, it's a horror moment. It's a horror slasher moment, but it's yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, I also, and this might be more controversial. I liked seeing Tarkin in this movie. I don't think it, I don't think I this thought movie it was great. Looks bad. Yeah. No, no, no. Like listen, I thought it was great. And, and what I will say in terms of like the, we, you know, listen, we can talk about the principle of, you know, of, of this kind of uh, digital alteration. Uh, I, I think that there's probably a, a moral and ethical argument that can be made about doing it that, like, I'm not that interested in making um, or exploring. Um, and I also think that, like, yeah, if you really wanted to be picky, you could sort of, you know, dissect how different it looked compared to sort of an organic face. And, you know, you could just be like, well, why not just either recast the role or you know, just cast another character. But this, as in, there are a, a lot of other moments in Star Wars where I'm just like, just go with it. And we'll get to this when we discuss the return of Palpatine and in, in the Rise of Skywalker. But there are legitimately just some moments where I'm just like, yeah, uh, okay, okay. And honestly, like, it's worth it. I think having Tarkin there is a fun little callback. I think it's a nice little antagonist for um, the Ben Mendelsohn character, Krennic. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I don't find it offensive at all. I don't find the Princess Leia the thing at the end offensive at all. Um, I think it's a nice little touch. And once they get the technology just right, um, I think it'll be even more compelling and an even better idea, although it probably will cause a few more unemployed actors. Uh, I don't know how to resolve that. Right. Yeah, the last thing about Rogue One um, that... I can't help but hold against the movie. And I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. I, I understand this is this is not me criticizing the movie. This is me being more prescriptive and think about mm-hmm. what I would have done or what I think they should have done, which is mm-hmm. not which is should be separate, but I did at least want to mention this. And it's because knowing like that only a few years later they were willing to completely recast the iconic role of Han Solo and give him an origin story. Mm-hmm. I can't help but reverse that and think of Rogue One should have been Princess Leia's origin. And instead of Jin and her dad, make it young Princess Leia in the Senate realizes that her dad is funding these rebels and joins his cause. And the, you know, the moments that we, they tried to give us between Felicity Jones and Mads, uh, Mads Mikkelsen, you could have done with Felicity Jones playing Princess Leia and, and have her give, have those moments with Jimmy Smith and make him an actual character that we care about. And you could have done a similar thing where she was part of, part of this plan. But at the end, you know, maybe she does, maybe her first boyfriend is Caskin and or, or something like that. And at the end he, he can't get off the planet. So she knows that he has to die for this and something like that. Or um, I, I just, I don't know. I just think, maybe it's just my hang up in not feeling emotionally as invested in these characters. And it does. I mean, if they had gone with this type of thing, then everything that you were saying about this not being tied into the, the legacy and the bloodline and actually showing the real people who had to fight and die and nobody will ever remember their names. You lose that. If all of a sudden this is about princess Leia, but 
I think I would kind of prefer that if they tried it, but who knows? That's, yeah, I think that's, that's interesting. That's I'm, surpri- yeah. I'm surprised I didn't hear you talk about, maybe you did talk about it before and I just forgot, but like, I, I would just simply say that maybe there's a way they could have done like some type of hybrid approach mm. where you have these rebels in the field and then like strip away, like, 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 and then you concurrently, you have like more of a developed role for like a younger Princess Leia and her father. And take the time you're devoted to like engineering some type, some feels for the uh, Jin and Galen or so. Um, spend that on sort of Leia slowly realizing this and like, you know, working in tandem with her father. And then, but then have these people led by Felicity Jones as like strictly, you know, two, the two dimensional characters they end up being instead of trying to shoehorn some type of emotions uh, trying to get us to feel for them. And I think you could achieve that as well. And then have, and not have princess Leia be like a glorified cameo, but like, I think have it be more of a substantive role, but like not the dominating thing that's going on. I think maybe there could have been a hybrid approach that would have not have just amounted to, you know, what I would have thought maybe sort of fan servicey usurpation of, you know, a, a really neat idea. I think a hybrid approach might work, but I think what you're describing is actually emotionally resonant and it pulled off. Well, you know, could have been good. Destroy her and you and all of it. No. Strike me down in anger and I'll always be with you. Just like your father. Let's move into the uh, the consensus favorite, the Last Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I I am a Last Jedi ride or die, so like I'm I will fight all, right. all comers. All right, we'll see. Um, that this this movie caused a lot of <laughs> anxiety in people and a lot of uh, grumpy feelings. There's a lot in this movie that I like and a lot that I don't like. Um, sticking with the the stuff that I like first, um, and I've said this before, pretty much everything in Snoke's throne room like foreshadowed before with Luke's line, this is not going to go the way you think. I love that line. From once he says Mm -hmm. that everything in there, when she, she goes, she's completely outmatched by him. He's toying with her. Snoke is, I mean, Mm -hmm. toying with Mm -hmm. her, like throwing her lightsaber around, hitting her in the head. Um, Mm -hmm. She tries to grab uh, like Ben's and everything or Kylo's and, and that gets spinning around to the fact that once she drops his lightsaber and it spins around on the floor in front of him and you see look up and you like, like after you know what's coming, you see that's where he figures out exactly what he's going to do. And then the moment, yeah, he, he betrays Snoke. He cuts him in half with her lightsaber and it flies into her hand. And the, the music that Star Wars theme just rises and you see, and they turn back to back. They have this nod of agreement and the, the fight scene will come back to this fight scene um, oh we will but everything with them just like fighting and taking care of business and then at the mm-hmm. end she's like okay stop the massacring the fleet we've got to go yeah and he's just like no it's time to let all the old things die yeah. you know like the the rebels the resistance the sith the jedi everything and he mm-hmm. tells her to come with him and it's like no he didn't turn to the light side the way she thought he he became what every Sith apprentice tries to do, which is he murdered his master to take his place. He yeah. 
all in and he wants her on her side and the heartbreak in her eyes mm-hmm. and the fight that they that it ends up leading to with them fighting over the lightsaber between them um i that the whole thing i just i love it one of the yeah. best moments in any star wars thing like that whole sequence yeah like like listen 100 I, I i can't say enough about it except you know like i'm gonna maybe save my thoughts and push them very quickly to when we talk about the best lightsaber duels i i would just simply say that all of that happening under the against the background of the holdo maneuver you talk about chef's kiss like that to me is like blockbuster cinematic perfection and like talk about like like acting the look on on daisy ridley's face when she says ben don't do this is just you know and and again as as a lead into that i would say that like there is from the get-go in the force awakens electric chemistry between these two actors like you never actually have to buy in to that, that's another thing. There's just like casting is makes so much of a difference. It's so much of the reason why the prequels were, you know, in my estimation, kind of a failure, uh, quite a failure. And, and, and casting has so much to do with it because, like, with actors the quality of uh, Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley, you can shortcut through so much like exposition. Where from the moment he took his mask off uh, on Starkiller Base and looked at her, it was just like, oh, it's okay. These two. It's on. It's going to happen. And so, like, when that's supplemented in Last Jedi by the, the Force Time chats between them, you know, and, and it leads to that throne room scene, but but it's it's sort of bracketed by the look they exchange when she finally, like, takes the escape pod and, like, the, the, the escape pod opens up and she sees his face. And, like, there's that look between them. There's just always these looks between them mm-hmm. uh, that I think just sort of uh, serve as, as just sort of an emotional fulcrum for uh, the series. No, I, I think the throne room scene occurring as it does against the backdrop of the holdo maneuver is mm-hmm. as close to, you know, just sort of star Wars orgasmic uh, in the modern era as you're going to get. It is, it is perfect. Yeah. And even I like, I mean, there's, there's clearly they, they set up there. It's, it's as much sexual tension as anything and, and potentially romantic tension in these scenes. Yes. And I liked in a previous episode when I was talking to Stella about the different relationships, she kind of pointed out like that, he he steps to the line of being like of a toxic boyfriend in his try- attempt to seduce her when he's like you're nobody but not to me when he's trying to be like that oh god like, that's like good the the part where he's like you know your family doesn't mean anything nobody cares about you you have nothing but you mean the world to me and trying yeah. to like build that up and and put himself in that position like that that way that he could try to convince her and luckily that's one of the things where she rejects him like after hearing that uh which oh, I yeah. Really, really like yeah oh yeah and again like it's just it's the looks between them and to me just kind of leading up to that sort of you know i'm i'm just going to pander here for the youngins but like <laughs> at at the thank you next moment when she just like closes the door the millennium falcon at the very end um <laughs> yeah which is just, just wonderful. No, no, like I can't, I can't say enough about their connection and, and the climactic moment in the throne room. I'll just have to just save a couple quick comments for when we actually talk about rank lightsaber involved duels. Yeah. Um, yeah. Adam driver owns this movie. He is so, mm-hmm. so good. Ray is also very, Daisy Ridley is also very good in this one. Yeah. I think it's probably Mark Hamill's best performance. I really think he does a great, great job being a Luke Skywalker that I didn't necessarily want to see. He does a phenomenal job with his story arc and his material. Um, it kind of hurts that I, I mean, I know that he wasn't necessarily happy with the arc that his character, but damn, he did a really good job in this movie. Um, but I absolutely think Adam Driver just owned this whole thing. It was, he was yeah, just- yeah. It's it's it's. Look, I I I think that those three are by far the best in this. And mm-hmm. I, I'm you know mm-hmm. I, I am 
I, I look, I think Mark Hamill in this movie is the best he's he is ever in Star Wars. It's probably the best he's ever going to be in a live action performance. I, you know, would probably add that the 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 writing, how he is served by the writing, regardless of how he personally felt about um, you know what happened to the character, was the right and correct thing to do, even if it doesn't didn't doesn't feel good for the audience. Um, and we can we can talk about that, but but no, from a performance standpoint, that is that is an actor in winter just like knocking the crap out of the ball, like hitting it out of the park every single time. Um, you know, I just can't say enough. And it is a testament to all three of them, like how how much they are separated in terms of like what they're doing and what everyone else is doing, and everyone else is perfectly fine, but like they're just playing a different game. Um, other little things, little moments about the movie that I liked. Um, once the Millennium Falcon arrives during the Battle of Crate. I love um, that when, scene. When the TIE fighters show up and it just it swoops down, it blows up three oh. TIE fighters with a shot. And oh. the, the classic the theme music comes back from that Return of the yep. Jedi. Yep. And they pull away and and you see Kylo Ren's reaction. He's like, blow that ship out of the sky. Yep, and, yep. And, and Finn actually screams they hate that ship and everything. And when it leads them through the bowels of Crate into the caverns, I just I What a it. visually dazzling sequence that yep, is. Yep. I love when Yoda shows up and he takes Luke to school again. That's a really fun little moment. It's fun to see. Yeah, I remember on that one, I remember very vividly the podcast that you had um uh, I don't know if it was film and water or yeah, it would have been with Robin. Yeah. yeah. And Rob was kind of beating the drum of like impish Yoda is back. Puppet Yoda is back. <laughs> and I love it. And like, that's the thing, Ryan, it's just like, I think that's an amazing scene. And I think a whole big part of that is that Yoda was puppet Yoda and he was impish Yoda, but like it was, there was not an ounce of fat in that scene. It was not a scene just for the point of having a cameo. That is a perfect scene that encapsulates to me, the philosophy of that movie. It is that movie is an embrace of failure and Yoda hitting Luke over the head with that is great. And I, you know, just the, the making fun of Luke for not having read any of the books, but having some weird reverence for them. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that scene is, it's an extremely emotional scene, especially at the end when he's just like, we are what they grow beyond. That's the true burden of all masters. Oh my God. Just mm-hmm. perfect. Perfect. Page's sacrifice in the beginning during the bombing run. Now I have I have a problem with the bombing run, and I'll, I'll explain that. But her sacrifice at the end, like the whole way that's shot and everything, with her climbing in and like falling down and like catching the detonator at the last minute and like pushing the mm-hmm. button and everything yep. for being a character that we'll never see again, and we've only known her for like ninety seconds in this movie. Some of which was in slow motion, so it felt a little bit longer. But and we don't even know who Rose is. We don't find out that they're sisters yep. until later on in the movie. Um, but her for being like this known, just like a grunt you know bomber deer who who dies and sacrifices herself for this thing i got more emotion out of that little moment than i did from any of the characters in rogue one dying um oh, so it, okay that's like, interesting that's interesting. yeah that's so cool. uh, like again like you could have given me that same sense of these are you know the frontline soldiers who have to make this sacrifice that history probably won't remember but mm-hmm. this is the cost for this type of like freedom and this type of victory and everything. So I just yeah, thought the well way that was shot and the way that was executed was really, really well done. Now I, I liked that bombing run in the beginning because it looked cool and you would get these new ships and everything and the way they're doing it. I, like after seeing it a second time, I was like, this doesn't make sense. Like even by star Wars rules, they're flying like it's, earth gravity and like they can only oh yeah how like they have to fly directly over these ships and they're all being it's like like 
why can't they maneuver like other types of starfight? Why are they like flying like they're in the air or they're in the water or something like submarines or something? And even just like the whole nature of how these bombers like work with like the bay doors opening and all of these bombs like falling down, like and, like attaching to the Star Destroyer. It's like a simple proton torpedo fired from an X-Wing should be able to do as much as these bombs. So just like – I thought that is, too. Maybe there's something unique about the composition of dreadnoughts that like – yeah, and it's one of those things where it's like, like I, I felt a little dumb because like after this, like after the movie, like I saw Neil deGrasse Tyson basically like, you know, this isn't really how space works and everything like that, and kind of complaining about the physics of Star Wars. And I think he was doing it tongue in cheek. He was joking. Obviously, it's a, it's a fantasy, and people were like, you don't understand it. It's like you guys. He was joking. I, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson was joking. Not now, Neil. <laughs> yeah, but but at the same, but at the same time, I was kind of like. Yeah, I think even within the world of Star Wars, this is kind of breaking some of those rules, and it doesn't really work. Um, so I will have more to say about the bombing battle uh, and the opening battle uh, when we rank space battles, but I will just say that like it is the best opening scene of a Star Wars movie. Okay, <laughs> so I do really like the introduction of Rose. Um, I like mm-hmm. how she's she's first shown to us and how she meets Finn as like this mm-hmm. fan girl and everything, but she st- she stuns him and she's just like you know she's not even a soldier she's like a computer technician or like an engineer a grunt. Um, yeah. I like the look of Canto Bite and the casino when we first mm-hmm. meet it when he does that mm-hmm. long shot across the tables. It's an homage to a famous to a famous movie. I don't know what it is, um, but like the look of like this is this is a fancy like white tie casino in the Star Wars world. Like this is kind of mm-hmm. crazy. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's like the opposite of the Mos Eisley Cantina. And that's really, really cool. So I liked all of those things. Yeah. I, I you know, and again, the, I think we've, we've litigated like Canto Bite. Uh, I think the more I watch it, the less it bothers me. And the more I watch it, the less prominent a part of the movie, it seems. I don't know that like that much time was spent on it, you know, in terms of raw think- like screen time. I, I, it, it still bothers me because it felt like, like in the middle of when they have this mission, like then Rose, they bring up the whole issues about, you know, like, like people who get wealthy, like war profiteering yeah. and, and stuff like that. And, and then and DJ like, and his, like, who's the real bad guy? I mean, right, right. And it felt, felt yeah. it felt to me like Ryan Johnson had this commentary on class and wealth. And yeah. I was like, what is he, do- why is this in this movie? And then when I saw Knives Out, I was like, okay, Ryan Johnson obviously has some thoughts on class and wealth. And it yeah. works in the, in the whodunit murder mystery movie. I don't think it worked in the Star Wars movie. For one thing, it wasn't necessary. It felt like it derailed the plot yeah. at that point. And it was just kind of like weird. And then when they, they ride out on the, like the horses that are like breaking, like literally like punching. Like she says, she wants to put a fist through this whole place, and then they like smash the whole casino and their getaway things. That that felt more prequely to a to a certain extent. Sure. Sure. But also, this leads me to overall my hang up with the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I kind of mentioned this to you the last time, and I, I didn't really mm-hmm. get into the details, but I felt like one of the things Ryan Johnson wanted to do with this thing was subvert expectations, mm-hmm. which I think you can do. Although, was it right to do that right after the two nostalgia trips that we've had with The Force Awakens and Rogue One? Yeah. Um, but also, in trying to do that, I felt like, like uh, whether intentionally or not, a director is saying, look how clever I am by playing against type this way. Mm-hmm. But I felt like he was doing that very inconsistently because mm-hmm. sometimes he would say, like, hey – these, th- were, you know, you expect the the heroes are going to sneak aboard the star destroyer and they're going to go and ser- turn this thing off. But oh no, 
they get captured. Why? Just because a random droid scanned them and realized they weren't real. Like that type of daring, crazy maneuver that Han, Luke, and Leia did the first time around, that's not going to work every time. And maybe it's mm-hmm. kind of unrealistic to expect that to work and that the whole their, their whole plan fails, crashes, and burns because of that. Okay, that's one thing to say. That, that feel, okay, if you're going to apply kind of like realistic consequences to that, then what are Finn and Rose doing riding these like horses through whole like brick walls and stuff like that? And like... Like the, I don't know. It just it, it felt like sometimes he was applying those those rules, like saying you know Poe Dameron's you know hot shot you know uh, like tactics and everything, and and like doing this like you know suicide mission got all of his people killed. But then you can also have the Millennium Falcon fly in and take away all of the Tie Fighters and and save everybody. And it's I don't know. I, I felt like he was playing fast and loose on when this was a space fantasy and when mm-hmm. we were expected to feel like the ground could be flipped on us because the rules don't really work that way. It's just, it, it felt disjointed at times. Sure. And I think there's a point you made um, last time about how, look, if you're going to consciously subvert expectations and you're going to like sort of aggressively, relentlessly make a movie with the, that has the ethos, I can make it better than you. I can make it smarter than you. Then your thing better be airtight. And in this case, it's not. And like, I, for all the specific criticisms that you have that I might take issue with, I mean, for like, I don't necessarily take issue with that macro criticism. I think I conceive of The Last Jedi as just sort of a brilliant near masterpiece, but like the things that make it miss being like a perfect movie are like glaring and crazy and off kilter. But like, to me, that just kind of makes it enjoyable, even if it Mm. keeps it from being like an absolute airtight, um, flawless movie. Um, I, I think the ethos of it is pretty damn good because I never think that it's subverting expectations just for the po- just for the sake of subverting expectations. Um, like it is an off. Listen, it is an off-putting and alienating. It has it's a movie that has an off-putting and alienating tone. Like mm-hmm. from the moment Luke Skywalker tosses that lightsaber to when he's like just like milking that weird creature and like <laughs> defiantly defiantly taking that swig. And the first time I saw that, I was like so repulsed by it. I almost threw up, but now I just kind of sort of love. <laughs> um, but I, I no, I, I understand what you're saying. I just think that like the flaws are not nearly as like glaring and they don't undermine the central tenet of the movie as much as people, its detractors say it does. Now, I think, again, judging by the rubric of how is this as the second part of a trilogy? I think there, therein lies your problems. Yeah, therein yeah. lie, you know, the things that kind of undermine it. But like, man, I, I think this is a near perfect movie. Like, I love the making Ray nobody, even though that is like a complete mess in Rise of Skywalker, and they constantly and, undermine it. Yeah, and, right. and I, I like that reveal. I, I like it wasn't what I was expecting, but I was happy that they went that direction. And I wish that. Yeah. We okay, there's one other like problem that i have with the movie then because sure, if, sure, you, sure. if your if your position is i think you think it's near perfect i i have to do one more thing to try and undercut sure, sure, sure. the whole logic of like the slow chase and their escape thing yeah like they're they're basically running from these star destroyers and they're running out of fuel and the idea <laughs> as they establish that is that the star destroyers can track them through hyperspace mm-hmm. but it's based on just one ship the lead ship is tracking mm-hmm. them and it's mm-hmm. only tracking the big ship and they don't have enough fuel to do multiple jumps. They can basically only go one planet away, and then they'll be they'll mm-hmm. be cornered. But there are three resistance ships there. 
So at the start, at the start, what, when are they at the start at the start of the chase? Gotcha. Gotcha. So if the, the, the Snoke Star Destroyer is chasing them, two of those other ships could have escaped, could have jumped in a different direction. And presumably Snoke would have only been chasing the main ship with Leia on it. They had other shuttles so that they, they, because they actually evacuate these smaller ships Mm -hmm. and put all the personnel except for the captain who goes down with those ships. And, and we see those blown up because they just run out of fuel. You know, it's just, it's the battle of attrition where they just eventually run. But all of the crews of those ships were able to evacuate onto the bigger ship with Leia Mm -hmm. and Poe and Haldo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You could have split up all of the leadership and like the, the, the essential crew members, and they could have jumped three different directions. And you could, but the time they were doing that, but the time the three in tandem were doing that, they didn't know they were being tracked. I think they found out pretty early. They found out before the main battle because, because Finn, Finn and Rose figured that out and told Poe. So there's also the thing where Finn and Rose are able to get into a ship and leave the battle. Mm-hmm. And they, the, like on, on the resistance ship, they have to hide it from Haldo so she doesn't know. But that mm-hmm. meant people could have escaped. People could have gotten away and not come back. They could have secreted away Leia or whoever in the leadership, whoever they thought was most valuable. Leia probably wouldn't have wanted to go. She would have insisted on you mm-hmm. know, going down with the ship as the leader. But – and then like with like the, the last – the desperate Haldo maneuver, which is – visually stunning and it's a and it's a, a great payoff moment in there mm-hmm. which turns the ship around and flies at light speed into the capital ships and takes out like seven star destroyers it's amazing mm-hmm. but you can't tell me she's the first person who ever thought of that maneuver and if the other two ships are going to run out of fuel and be destroyed anyway neither of them thought to turn around with their last gasp of fuel and try to fly into the other the other ships and take out a star destroyer with them they weren't as big they wouldn't have done as much damage but something like i just like again like this is this this shouldn't have bothered me as much mm-hmm. except the movie seemed to be putting so much emphasis on poe's hot dog tactics got him slapped in the face and demoted mm-hmm. you have to think mm-hmm. smarter than this it's like well okay, okay but I don't know. You're, you're okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to pay attention to the logic of this and I'm seeing a lot of flaws. So I don't know. There, there's that. And then, then my last little nitpick thing is sure. I like the DJ character by Benicio del Toro, like on the level of Jar Jar Binks. I hate him. Like, I just do not like looking at him in the movie. Uh, a, like a lot of off-putting affectation and unlike Laura Dern, it's largely a waste of a very talented actor. Um, and I think it goes to, that idea of what you were talking about with the larger statement that Ryan Johnson was trying to make about like war profiteering or whatever. And it's just like, all right, fella, are you in or out? Are you making a larger point about like, you know, what's going on and how like not everyone is a good guy and everyone has shades of gray. Fine. Let's explore that. Or are you going to talk about it for like, you know, like a sentence, a throwaway sentence and move on. But it feels like you wanted to have it both ways. Mm -hmm. And between his sort of like physical mannerisms and affectation, it was, you know, I, for me, one of the biggest criticisms of last jedi is there are just a bunch of moments that like take me out of it mm-hmm. um i i'm never gonna sort of be okay with the 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 the, the carrie fisher leia space thing yeah uh because it's just so weird like you know and i know that you know uh your wife has patiently tried to explain to me the concept of <laughs> whatever whatever gravity but like okay is that a thing we're doing okay um that is one uh Benicio del Toro is just one like because if it's I mean you know Laura Dern is another example of like an independently great actor that just showed up in Star Wars but like you know she purple hair aside she kind of subsumed her Laura Dernness 
into like you know a character. Now you can agree whether or not you like the character or not. That's fine. I'm happy I think to she's fine. have that. To- I, she's yeah, fine. Yeah, I like her. I, I like her a lot. Um, yeah. uh, but like Benicio del Toro was just like, I am going to be a ham and I'm going to right. you know invent these mannerisms and and have attention. And to me, it's just like that takes me out of it. That's just like what's going on. The third time is, and again, this is a very minor complaint, but like the the moment on crate when. Um, they are blasting away at, at Luke and like he comes out of it. And like Mark Hamill has said that he was inspired by Barack Obama in like wiping the, 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 the dirt off of his shoulder when people throw criticism at him. And like, I love Mark Hamill and I love that Mark Hamill loves Barack Obama and wanted to do an homage to him. But to me, I'm just like, that is a very USA circa 2010s thing to do. Like that is a very, like what's happening. Um, so there, there's just, there's just these moments that like, I'm just like, oh my God, I'm, this is not what, this is not Star Wars, Benicio Del Toro, like get, get it together. Um, and and again, listen, in terms of your larger criticism of, you know, the, 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 the ships, I get that I'm going to have to go back and sense the chronology of when the ships are in light speed and when they're found out, because if you're, if you're right about the chronology, it's a totally valid criticism. Um, I think the aesthetics of the battle just like with the bombers, I think the aesthetics of the battle kind of make up for that that hole in plot logic. But like, it will still be a hole in plot logic. I, so I will just do a you know write your congressman and he'll get back to you. I will do that. I'm I'm very curious about that. But just the last thing I would say, just from big picture about Last Jedi, just to oh wait, is there anything else big that you liked about it or disliked? Just just so we uh, you know stay on track. Um, no, I mean, just like overall thoughts, again, feeling, feeling very uneven and this will kind of reflect where, where it shows up in my, in my overall ranking. Um, I loved the Ray Kylo Luke of the movie, like that, that section. I didn't really like, I didn't like the Poe Dameron or the Finn and Rose sections. Okay. Um, until the, the the very end, when they all kind of come together on crate, you know, the last half hour of the movie, it gels a little mm-hmm. bit better. But mm-hmm. even then, there's still it's it's not as good. But like Ray Ray's story, and in as much as it relates to both Luke and Kylo and Snoke and everything like that, I I think that that stuff that material is all great. The other yeah. stuff in the movie, I don't like. Okay, real quick. Okay, that that, that makes perfect sense, and I'm, I'm interested to see how it's reflected in your rankings. It sounds like you're saying that Last Jedi is often brilliant, often frustrating, and overall uneven experience that you enjoy uh, large stretches of, which I, I can you know, certainly get behind. The last plug I would make for it is, is Mark Hamill and Luke Skywalker in the sense of this, that like, I love his arc. That arc got a lot of criticism, took a lot of crap. I thought it was like kind of unflinchingly honest. It gave us a full three-dimensional character. Um, I, there's a lot of criticism that has come from traditional fans in our demographic that and it's always boiled down to, that's not my Luke Skywalker. Right. Um, and you know, my thing is just kind of like, look, guys, if you want like to take your heroes like from your memory and just kind of put them on a shelf and admire them, like that's absolutely fine. Like go go do that. I don't know how rewarding an experience that is. And I find that like my journey through the stories is way more enriching when they we see them as complicated, three-dimensional going through things. And like, I liked the jarring nature of seeing Luke throw that lifesaver away and just being kind of like a jerk to Ray. Um, I like the fact that he is sad and, and closed off and has closed himself off from the force. I like how cynical he is and how he appraises the Jedi as a mess. And I think, you know, a lot of the criticism about that has, you know, has more to do with people and sort of their own conception of what their heroes should be. 
than anything else. And just, just to make a, just a larger, quick macro point about like, I love how in the sequel trilogy, our three main heroes are broken and separated from each other. Like it could have been very, like no one talks really that much about the fact that like Han and Leia are split up. That's a big deal. Like that is a love story that really served as, you know, the emotional basis other than Luke's mythology. Like that served as like the emotional basis of the story. And like they're split up. That's huge. Like Han is, or Luke is isolated from his friends. That's a huge deal. And I think that in Harrison Ford's performance and in Mark Hamill's performance and, you know, in Carrie Fisher being okay enough to, you know, give a a decent enough performance, even though I think that like, yeah, it's clear that there's a gap there. Um, I, I think that they bring out that sort of haunted, isolated quality. I like my heroes broken. I like like not having to put them up on a shelf and just kind of admire them. I like toying around with them. And like, this is never better epitomized in Luke than in, you know, at the end when he faces off against Kylo Ren, there are just two moments that I just love. When you contrast the very hopeful way that Han Solo reaches out to Ben at the end of Force Awakens when Ben kills him and Han is like, I'll help you, I'll do anything, come with me. And like you traditionally think of Han as like the cocky detached one as Luke is the naive, emotional, hopeful one. And Han is the one who's like, no, come with me, come with me. And at the end, like of Last Jedi, like they see each other, like Ben and Luke, and Ben's just like, oh, did you come here to, to tell me you're sorry, to save my soul? And Luke just looks at him. <laughs> and with this world-weary, cynical voice, he's just like, no, you know? <laughs> and, and, and it's wonderful. And, and again, the contrast it with, with Han and like how the emotional growth of Luke and his journey, just at the very end, you know, you always imagine like, you know, Luke being the hero, Luke being the person to like lead us by the hand, the hopeful one, the, the optimistic one. I love Luke Skywalker's last line in Star Wars, like as a living person is mm-hmm. just see you around kid. Like it's just, there's, it's, it's cynical. It's wisecracking. It's heavy. Like it's, it's wonderful. I think it's his best performance. I think actually I think it's Luke Skywalker's best arc. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's fascinating. Um, I, and I think that like he has a wonderful death. He has yeah, a wonderful, I, yeah. like, meaningful death. Yeah, again, it's it's not where I would have wanted his character to start. You know, when the saga, when the this new trilogy began, I didn't mm-hmm. want him to be an old, even angrier Ben Kenobi and Yoda. Mm-hmm. But this is what they gave us, and they did it way better than I would have expected. I, I loved his performance. I love the depiction, and oh my god, I I really really love the scene between uh, Luke and Leia right before the, oh, yeah. like, the last battle and everything. The fact yeah. that they actually got to have that scene because of her untimely, Carrie Fisher's really untimely death, like right before the movie came out uh, a year mm-hmm. before she actually died right after Rogue one came out. Um, yeah. But the fact that they got to film that moment and they had to have that scene um, where, where they could, you know, they could, they could have that moment. And I, I really, really like that as yeah, and it was, it was filled sort of with sentimental emotion. value. Yeah. It was filled with regret. Yeah, and emotion. Yeah. And again, that is life. And like, I yeah. just, just, this is how life goes. And so the people that want their, their heroes to be like brave and heroic and like unflawed, that to me is very uninteresting. So I was all in on like sad Han and bitter Luke and isolated mm-hmm. Leia, like still trying to like get, the, get the troops together. Like I love that. And the fact that it was all in the service of propelling Ray's story. Yeah. I think that's why I love they got how they got their legacy ba- characters. They got that balance, right? All right, let's move on to 2018's Solo. We need to divert auxiliary power to the rear deflector shield. We definitely do. Since when do you know how to fly? 
190 years old? Mm. You look great. Chewie, get in. I'll help under. I mean, obviously, after The Last Jedi, I was feeling kind of weary and lost and, and not... And... You and the box office audience, Ryan. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when Solo came out, I did not see it opening day. I didn't see it for two weeks. And it was basically, I, I bumped into a, a friend, a coworker who was like, hey, have you seen Solo yet? And I kind of, it, it occurred to me, I was like, you know what? I haven't, actually. And it occurred sort of, to me. I like yeah, it. I, I was like, and this, but then I did watch it and I was like, no, I don't know why I was so against that. It was better than I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and then re and, and like I've seen it a few times and and rewatching it again for this time, there was a lot more in this movie that I enjoy than I don't like. And and I'm, my my major hang up going into it was this is unnecessary. We don't yep. need an origin for Solo for Han Solo. Mm-hmm. Recasting an iconic figure, Harrison Ford's iconic performance. Uh, as Han Solo, that's a mistake. We don't need the story. It's superfluous. What are you thinking? The whole drama with firing Lord and Miller off of it and replacing mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. with Ron Howard, who is a really talented director who can get the job done, but I don't know if he's an, an artist necessarily, like an auteur. But he has directed some movies that I really, really like. So I was like, okay, this seems like a safe, you know, like we got to get this done, bring in the guy who can get the job done. Um, so I, you know, I had all that going into it, watching the movie again. I really, really like this one. I don't, that's it, so interesting. it's, it's not great, but it's really, really enjoyable as just a pleasant adventure movie. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of go, I'll reverse this. I'll kind of go through the things that I don't like about it first, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. the fact that they did put everything that we know about Han Solo into one adventure and one story is kind of dumb. And I think Mike Gillis described it as like, it's like a Wikipedia entry that they just yep. made a movie of it. Um, it kind of reads a little bit like a kid's fanfic that feels kind of like forced and unnecessary. It feels a little bit lazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like how Han and Chewbacca meet and the fact mm-hmm. that Han, they, they, like they, they're coming together, is not a selfless act because in the mythology, Han saved Chewbacca's life and he pledged a Wookiee life debt, meaning like that Chewie would always be with Han forever and he would mm-hmm. die for him if necessary. The way they actually meet in this case, like they're, it's a mutual using each other to escape from prison. Yeah. Um, and, and so I was like, all right, that's that kind of feels like a contradiction and it doesn't work although i don't think in actually in the movies they never say anything like life debt so that's really more of an a, a canon outside like expanded universe idea. from the holiday special or something yeah, yeah. something yeah, yeah yeah so those things bothered me but the things that i did like in this one another droid character that i really really enjoy, oh yeah l337 lando's droid is like the droid that i've been waiting for she's feisty she's acerbic she is possibly delusional in how she mm-hmm. thinks lando is in love with her um and she's wants to she she she's an ad she's an activist she believes in droid autonomy and and yeah. individuality and wants to lead this revolution uh i love her i love the look of her the way she moves kind of like with these like out like wide hips and everything like that um she's just a fun character that i enjoyed yeah i i look i don't actually some total have a whole lot to say about solo like i have i'm pretty i have been in the past very vocal about the fact that like of the five disney movies it's the one that probably is closest to a miss um and and it's not because of any big cardinal sin that was committed i i think that everything about the movie from like conception 
to execution to marketing strategy to release date mm-hmm. uh, was just just kind of missed the mark. And so, like my you know coming because because again, when I first saw Last Jedi, I was very underwhelmed by it. I was just sort of in the consensus where a lot of people were, and then it took a couple of repeated viewings uh, over the next few months for me to become neutral about it and then okay with it and then liking it and then now loving it so i by the time i saw by the time solo was released i was just like oh more star wars huh okay and i and i and i feel like the general public felt this way because like when i i went on opening night memorial day weekend in 2018 and the theater was like uh, a quarter full a third full maybe which is just shocking for opening night of a star wars movie you just don't which, again think i think they, i think they made a mistake by making it a summer release they should have pushed it back to christmas yep. again because uh, yeah, was, no, I think that's exactly. It was also it. coming that, two weeks after Avengers: Infinity War. Infinity, yeah, exactly. And I think just so close off the heels of uh, you know for, the last for, Jedi, for them yeah. a, des- a disappointing Star Wars movie. Yeah. Um, so I didn't go go in with a lot of enthusiasm for all the reasons that you articulate. I, 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 I you know, I share your initial or your second impression of the film, which is just kind of like that. Eh, feels like we're checking off boxes. Um, you know, it was low stakes. Which, you know, when I go to a movie, I want, I want something going on. I, I will say I like the immediate and easy chemistry between Alden Ehrenreich, who got a lot of crap, but it was mm-hmm. ultimately fine. I like New Chewbacca. I love that actor very much. <laughs> um, he's just, he is wonderful in the role. He is, seems like a wonderful person with, like, extreme enthusiasm for being a part of the Star Wars universe. And, like, mm-hmm. just, Ryan, you know, in a universe where, like, you know, uh, uh, Oscar Isaac and John Boyega are like, yeah, yeah we're out. Um, yeah. I'm just like, yeah, I'm down with people who are enthusiastic about being in Star Wars. Um, I L three three. And if, you, if you're a seven and a half foot person and you can milk that into being in a bunch of Star Wars movies, oh hell yeah, dude. <laughs> oh yeah, just like go for it. Um, you know everything you're saying about like uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge's performance in L three. Mm-hmm. I love that Donald Glover was not neither impression nor impersonation, yet he mm-hmm. embodied a quality of Lando Calrissian that you know was was immediately appealing. Um, I really enjoyed the Rio character. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, the wiseacre guy. Yeah. Um, I, I thought the coaxium heist, is that what it was at the beginning? Yeah, yeah. Um yeah. I thought that was like a wonderful set piece. Yeah. Um it's funny, that was at the time the most expensive movie ever made. Two hundred and seventy five million dollars. Um I just it's very surprising for like Is that because they had to like hire completely different like production teams in the middle I guess, you know what i guess that's right i, I, I guess think part of, because the the same thing with was um part of the reason why justice league ended up being such a failure was because they basically had to buy the movie twice or pay the movie oh, twice because bringing in a new director new teams okay. all the reshoots that's, all like that's a they, very... they, they almost had, i mean like there were whole cast members in this like um uh, Michael Kenneth Williams was supposed to be Dryden Voss. They were going to do yep, like a mocap yep. thing with him, mm-hmm. and they filmed some stuff. And then yep. when like they they switched directors and Ron Howard like they shook up the schedule, he couldn't come back again. So they're like, okay, we have to completely ditch that and yep. recast. And they brought yep. in what well, Paul Bettany. Like, is. Yeah, and so so from that standpoint, I think the price tag makes a lot more sense because I, I no, I, I should have remembered that because at the time I'm watching, I'm just like, okay, these special effects are kind of cool, but like. It's not that big a deal. Two hundred and seventy-five million dollars. Yeah, no, I think it, I um, the price was because they kind of had to finance it twice. Yeah, so so like all of that. I mean, look, I left the movie fairly unenthusiastic, but I didn't dislike it. It just it was a slog. I, I considered it kind of a slog, and I was not super enthusiastic about watching it again. You know, upon rewatch, I've now seen it like three or four times. 
it is to me just not a super exciting movie um and and and, and, and it's still a wholly unnecessary movie i will say this there's been a movement an underground movement on social media it's like hashtag make solo two happen and it seems like people a lot of people are having your experience where they watched it at first and they were just kind of like meh about it and the more times they saw it, the more they were like hey there's a lot really to kind of enjoy about it mm-hmm. and so the highest compliment i can pay the movie and again i'm thrilled that a lot of people like it and i'm open to liking it more because i think there's nothing the movie does wrong necessarily but i will say that like I, if i conceive of it as just sort of like a backdoor pilot like that clone wars movie Mm-hmm. Uh, for for a tele, for a limited run television series with Alden Ehrenreich mm-hmm. um, and Jonas as as Chewie, like there's a lot to really enjoy about it. I think once you get past like the unnecessary like table setting um, and checking off of the boxes, it's just like okay, we, we you know these are two kind of cool guys doing heist stuff. I think there's a lot of yeah. raw material for that. I, I think again, like I really liked Alden Ehrenreich and Donald Glover as Han and Lando. Like I, I almost see them as a slightly alternate universe take on the classic characters, um, sure. just because of the recasting and slightly different performances. But like, yeah, like if if instead of being a movie, if this would have been just a Disney Plus series called The Smuggler, and it wasn't Han Solo, he just gave him yep. any other name, like The Smuggler, and basically did some of the same things. I was like, I think it would have been great. Like, mm-hmm. I think the expectation of calling it Han Solo was. Yeah perhaps a thing that killed it for a lot of people. But if it was yep. just an original character and this was his origin story of how he fell in, into this world of, you know, running drugs or illicit material for the hot crime cartels, that would have been great. Yeah, um, I think that's and, and right. You're right. It's not world ending or galaxy spanning stakes. It is fairly small stakes, which for Star Wars at the movie level, you probably want it to be, you know, all in. We've got to save the galaxy. The smaller yeah. stakes, maybe they work better for something like The Mandalorian. And this mm-hmm. movie maybe should have been a series. I think yeah. I think it actually might have been served better that way. Yeah. Um, but I did like all the, the set pieces, like the speeder chase on Corellia in the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. The Kessel Run with them flying through the mall. Oh, yeah, lovely. Kind of lovely. Like that. Um, the whole the train heist when they're fighting with Emphis Nest's crew and stuff like that. Um, I, I like the look of Dryden Voss's like, pleasure yacht with like the music and the people there. Oh, yeah. Or two parts that I really, really liked when they they get back to the the planet and everything, and they're where they're going to meet Dryden for the last time, and they've they've stolen the coaxium, and Emphis Nest's crew kind of like surprises them and ambushes them, and Han mm-hmm. steps out and he's like, "I got forty hired guns in that ship right there, just <laughs> waiting for my order," and yeah. like that, you just see the Falcon takes off and Lando just ditches them and leaves them, yeah. and Han just steps backwards and he's like, "All right, Beckett, you keep talking." I love that moment, and then at the end when like Beckett is like he's got his gun drawn on Beckett and Beckett is like trying to talk to me. He's like, now the thing you got to know is, and boom, Han just shoots him dead right there, shooting him yep. first. That is, that is really cool. So I will say that like, you know, and this is just part of a larger statement about the Disney movies mm-hmm. uh, for whatever you can say about them. And again, I'm strongly pro the Disney movies. It, they're very funny. Like mm-hmm. they got the balance. They got the sense of humor, right. In like every single movie. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the rise of Skywalker. Why did the Emperor come for me? Why did he want to kill a child? Tell me. Because he saw what you would become. You don't just have power. You have his power. You're his granddaughter. You are a Palpatine. My mother 
was the daughter of Vader. Your father was the son of the Emperor. What Palpatine doesn't know is where a dyad in the Force ring. Two that are one. What I said at the beginning, the first time I, li- I saw the movie, I liked it because it, I did actually see some new things in this movie that I hadn't seen in Star Wars before. Mm-hmm. I liked the chemistry and the characters and what they were doing. Um, it was fast. It was adventurous. It kind of didn't give me a chance to think about how dumb some of the reveals are. And then seeing the movie a second time, whoo, no, no, I, I, I was very... I was very unhappy with it. So when I got to the part where I had to watch this one again, I had to carbo load for this one. I ate some fettuccine Alfredo <laughs> thinking that this was going to be, this was going to be tough. Um, and I don't hate this movie. It wasn't, it yeah. wasn't a bad experience watching it again. Now yeah. I think this movie does feel like a kind of fan fiction, mm-hmm. which is both good and bad, but this more than anything, this story reminds me of the post return of the Jedi novels and stories that came out like from 1993 to 1999. And that was my star Wars sweet spot. You know, Mm -hmm. after the movies, you know, that that was when, you know, I was, I was a teenager and really discovering this fandom. Like, yeah, you know, I wasn't playing with the toys because they were gone and I could, I could watch those movies and everything. But when I wanted to learn more about star Wars, those movies came out and it started with the Thrawn trilogy by Timothy Zahn. Mm -hmm. And then mm-hmm. there were more after that. And you got into some weird places where, you know, Luke started his own Jedi Academy and we have new characters. And some of those stories could get really kind of crazy and treated the Jedi like superheroes who could, you know, like you could get 12 like Jedi in a room together and use their minds to basically blow up a sun. They could be that powerful. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, kind of, we're, we're really going nuts here. But there was also, because there was nothing else, because that's all we had for Star Wars, I loved it and I bought into that. And I just, I took it into this greater world. This movie, in the way that it plays fast and loose with continuity, and I think JJ's tendency to prioritize emotional beats and and melodrama over intellectual honesty and truth you know like Mm -hmm. if if something connects with you on an emotional level it doesn't necessarily have to make sense and he really pushes that as far as it can go with this movie but as somebody who's been like loving this you know this franchise for almost four decades some of those hit some of those emotional beats hit with me when I know, like when I step back and I was like, it shouldn't, that should be really dumb. Making her a Palpatine is really stupid. And it's a slap in the face to one of my favorite reveals from the previous movie. But if I just go with it, you know what they, the way they play it off, the way they, the way they take it in this movie. Okay. I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to bring myself down to the level of this movie. I'm going to sort of like, like, turn part of my brain off and it's yep. it's like it, it releases some endorphins or some like whatever like chemicals in the brain yep. that bring me pleasure and it's like all right I can, can, okay can I, I i think that's a really really wonderfully apt way to describe it can i just make two quick macro observations about sure. like the spirit the spirit of making this movie and so and we can talk about this a little more in the rankings but what i will say is two observations one of which is that like there's a certain like kind of suspension of disbelief and, and suspension of critical faculties. I mean, you always have to do that with like, you know, space opera or science fiction, obviously, but like it's a higher level in Star Wars. And it ha- I have to do this three times to be able to just sort of get into certain movies. 
um, on a, on a, on a, on a, on a holistic level. Like, like one is like, Oh, you know, the, the, you know, there's a, de- there's not a death star in return of the Jedi. Huh? All right. Same thing with like the return of Starkiller base. But, uh, and so when I see that kind of like reveal, like from the opening line of like the dead speak, there is a tendency to be like, okay, well, I'm going to have to, I'm just going to rip this to shreds. <laughs> there is a weirdly, re- there's a weirdly relaxing feeling when you're just like, you know what? I'm okay. I'm just going to go with it. It's, it's, it's I, I also did this with the revenge of the Sith where I was just like, I know what they're doing. Like, like at the very beginning, I'm like, I know where they have to go. And yeah. I'm just, I'm going to have to, I'm well established with Hayden Christensen and how I feel about him and this dialogue. So I'm just going to have to go with it. Now with the revenge of the Sith, it still ends up being unsuccessful, but there is a level of suspension of disbelief and critical faculties that I think is necessary, which is fine. I think with rise of Skywalker, it, 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 it rewards your doing that and you don't feel scummy and like you need to take a shower after doing that. Because uh-huh. I think well, the best way I would describe Rise of Skywalker is I think it's the, like in conception, it's the, and in execution, it's the, it's like a freaky Friday with Revenge of the Sith. It is complete, right. like mirror components. I look at Revenge of the Sith as beautiful in conception and per, and, and like the, the broad strokes of the plot are very strong and the potential is like the raw material, the potential is there. And the execution is maybe some of the worst I've ever seen in blockbuster movies or movies at all. Mm-hmm. And with Rise of Skywalker, I'm just like, this is the most bad faith, cynical, pernicious, dumb, kind of mean spirited, like, like conception of a movie, but it is executed at an incredibly high level. And it relies so much on like the goodwill I have for four characters in particular that I've just grown to like love and be invested in that I am able to sort of forgive a lot of like very stupid things. So when I say, so when we say things like, yeah, just go with it. A really good example is the Palpatine thing where it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. Like that is like the Palpatine at all that he's there. And the fact that Ray is a Palpatine is such a relentless, bottomless, bad faith, like thing that they're pushing on us and that in a vacuum you want to scream you want to like burn it all down uh-huh. but the way i thought about it was well like people are stupid and they're giving us what we want even though that's not what we need and if you're gonna do that if you're gonna like make race somebody and retcon last jedi and make this like disappointing then like i will give you props for not making her a skywalker solo or kenobi which is mm-hmm. just the infinite universe which was the the finite universe of what all like the like uh, Jamokes were talking about right. about like who is this person? I bet she's a Skywalker. I bet she's like Han and Luke's daughter. Or I bet she's like Han and Leia's daughter. I bet she's Ben Kenobi's granddaughter. No one was talking about Palpatine, and so I'm just like, well, you know, if you're gonna do that, I, I definitely was not thinking Palpatine. And like, it, for them to do that and to make it a a morality play of I could go dark, but like you are who you choose. You are not not your bloodline. That is a salvage job of a train wreck. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Okay, it sorry. does. Mm-hmm. Um, so the few, a few of the other things, and again, some of these are substantive, and some of them are just very cosmetic. Um, I sure. love the look of the Sith Temple on Exegol, like that. That as sure. a as a set piece, like the way it's sort of floating above the ground, the weird like kind of lightning strikes. Everything about that is really, really cool. Um, yeah, like like as a 
as a location for a final battle between you know the, our last Jedi and like the the Sith Master. I mean, we had the the battle in the Emperor's throne room in the Death Star. How do you mm-hmm. match that without making it look like it's the same place? I think yeah. this weird kind of creepy cavernous like coffin tomb thing with these people chanting in the background that might be people or might be ghosts who the hell knows like it's just yeah. it was a very cool looking location yeah. as much as I, I wasn't happy of like the, the players or what was going on there I wish mm-hmm. they had let Kylo Ren be the big bad of the movie but they, he, they saddled him with this new baggage um, of, mm-hmm. of having to take a backseat to a new master I didn't like that but and also by the by the way he had subverted our expectations by not redeeming himself by committing I thought that giving him this redemption arc in the second act also was something that is dumb on the face of it. And it, it, like, if you're not willing to meet them that way, then it's, it's a bad choice, but it allowed him to have an emotional scene with Harrison Ford again, which was a nice yeah. service scene. Um, I Even liked, if Harrison Ford didn't bother to shave, but yeah, you're right. I like when he came back to like the rescue at the end and they got to actually work together and the payoff of that forced telepathy when she gives him a lightsaber mm-hmm. so that he can fight off yeah. like, the other guards. And, and when they're standing side by side on, on one again, like that, that's a moment when the good guy and the bad guy possible, like when they have like this, brother sister or possibly lover kind of connection to each other and they have to work together to fight off an even more powerful villain that again felt like something out of the the old young jedi novels from the 90s or something that i was familiar Mm -hmm. with so that had a that even though i was bummed that they weren't making kylo the villain that they set him up to be i was like okay this is this is giving me a weird kind of nostalgia that is resonating with me when I, i know it shouldn't um the, the almost everything on the planet Kajimi, um, like this mm-hmm. very Nepal looking like snow covered like thing with the different levels. I liked Zori beautiful of her. Uh Babu Frick mm-hmm. kind of intrigued me. Um C3PO's mind wipe for the first time I had an emotional response to C3PO um and his potential yeah. sacrifice of losing his whole identity and his memory. Um I wish mm-hmm. they had stuck with that. Yeah. Um I didn't like the, the revelation that Poe is was like you used to be a, like a spice smuggler, and then Hux being the spy. Those things didn't not work, but everything else about that whole that planet, and then the the fighting on the star destroyer above it, that stuff was all really really cool. I like that as a piece. Um, the Death Star two wreckage, um, I, just visually very cool. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. a nice little reminder. I thought as a set piece with Ray and and Kylo Ren fighting on that wreckage against the waves and. It looks very cool. There could be some logical problems, yeah. but it just it looked cool. Yeah. Look, I, I think that you know something you had mentioned when you first started, were talking about this movie that I really latched onto is that you know the concept of a MacGuffin gets criticized as like lazy, and maybe conceptually that's true. But in the sort of find our joy and go with it, you know, spirit, I'm saying that like there's a real breezy hangout vibe to like the first like hour of this movie that I really love. You know, one of the one of the, the the key things about like Force Awakens that made me fall in love with it was like the bond between Ray and Finn uh, and BB-8, um, and the bond between Poe and Finn at the very beginning, and the fact that like a large parts of the of, of these movies, you know, Poe and Ray didn't even know each other, and Ray and Finn were separated, and so to have this kind of space where they're all kind of hanging out is just kind of delightful. And again, it's on a par with like, listen, turn your brain off, enjoy it. But like just sort of the, the breezy hangout chemistry that the three of them have in, in service of like a little adventure 
to me, incredibly fun. I actually think like that whole, the, the whole, like, you know, first half of this movie is unbelievably fun. I, again, mm-hmm. I don't think it's the most, it's the, I don't think it's the most challenging thing. Right. I do think, you know, I think New York Magazine wrote a review of Rise of Skywalker that said, you know, for all the complaints about the other ones, this is the first Di- Star Wars movie that really does feel like it was hatched in the Magic Kingdom, but Disney made it. And it's just like, yeah, this feels to me like a, you know, like a really good Disney National Treasure or like Harry Potter, not that that's Disney property, but like, you know what I mean? There was yeah, a, yeah. an adventure quality to it, but like, hey, you know what? I like that stuff. Yeah, I like yeah. it. I think it's really fun. And I am totally fine to, you know, suspend certain elements of plot logic if that's what we're going mm-hmm. to do to sort of like bask in these people hanging out with each other. And, you know, uh, to me, I, I think if you're challenging the balance between, you know, plot and, and dialogue and acting, I think, you know, where Revenge of the Sith messes up with like dialogue and acting and how that like ruins the whole, you know, uh, enterprise, so to speak. Here, it's just like, the plot and the di- the breeziness of the plot and the dialogue kind of make up for the fact that like what we are watching is fundamentally very stupid. <laughs> um, and, and I think that that is a testament to, you know, like just sort of the, the basic blocking and tackling of movie making and the professionalism of JJ Abrams and, and these actors. And so, yeah, like Kajimi is beautiful. Post conversation with Zori bliss on the roof is, is just absolutely lovely. I love the relative prominence of Anthony Daniels in this movie because during this trilogy, R2 and C3PO were probably correctly sidelined. Right. Um, I think the ADHD pacing of this, I actually think that's a, a benefit because I think when the movie first came out, people were just like, ah, it's just jumping from thing to thing to thing. Oh, I think, like hyper- <laughs> I, think I think it saves it. It doesn't give you a chance to actually stop and think about what's going on. Right. Just, yeah, so yeah, yeah, this doesn't hold up to scrutiny. You have to kind of, yeah. You yeah. have to do that. And I think J.J. and Chris Terrio, the, the writers, must have believed that. So, like, no, I think, look, I think it is a, a huge sugar rush of a movie. And as long as you like, don't think too much about what's going on. It is absolutely, you know, it is absolutely enjoyable. Like again, it is it is about judging it in its own context as as the third part, closing part of an ambitious, seemingly ambitious trilogy. Like the Last Jedi, it is like it is a mess in a lot of ways. But like on its own, it sort of earns my goodwill because of like how much I'm invested in Poe Dameron and Finn and Ray. But if like if we stopped this side by side and, and like looked at frame by frame, dialogue by dialogue, we would just be like, oh, that is, you know, that is just not good. That that just does not work. So like I am very happy with it, even if we can acknowledge that like it is not a good movie. Uh, yeah, a few other a few other complaints and criticism that I do have to mention. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. One of the problems that Disney, or maybe JJ in particular, but I, I think this was more Disney, had was prioritizing sentimental attachments over maybe like just what was better for the story. I yeah. think reverse engineering scenes to include Carrie Fisher, I, I do think that kind of epitomizes a lot of what the sequels did bad. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think the scenes with her are bad scenes. Um, okay. I, I mean, I know they're using archive footage from the from Revenge of the or uh, the Force Awakens, and just trying to like write dialogue around with the characters so that they can use her dialogue. I think all of those scenes are kind of weak or nonsensical, and then the mm-hmm. way they have to construct her death scene, doing it with shadows and turning Maz Kanata into this weird voice of exposition, mm-hmm. is it just it bo- all of that bothers me. Um, it makes me annoyed at Maz Kanata for like just some of the how clunky some of this dialogue is and the things. And I know that they wanted to have that moment as the, the emotional crux that has a turning point for both Ray and Kylo Ren. But I can't I, 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 I don't buy it. I, I just think it I think it was bad. I, I didn't like it. I don't um, think there was a way to handle it. 
uh, that was going to be well. Um, to me, it was like, it was not very good, but I appreciated that it didn't draw too much attention to itself. At least maybe right. it will upon further I, rewatch. But I don't know how else they could have done it, which is why I think they shouldn't have. I think in, yeah. as, mu- in as much as it, like nothing would have satisfied. So I think the movie would have been better served just starting it two or three years later, Leia has died in the interim. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, for me, I would just have blasted her yeah. out of the ship in uh, Last Jedi and just left it there. But like that seems cold. But like, yeah, I mean, it, look, it was a bad situation. Um, I totally grant you the point that like it is they don't handle it particularly well. I, I'm just sat- happy that it wasn't an absolute train wreck. And like, you know, from a from a spiritual standpoint. I am glad that Harrison Ford agreed to come back because, you know, so much of the narrative is Harrison Ford, like, is so indifferent to Star Wars, doesn't like right. it. And I think, you know, he has, I know he has a previous relationship with J.J. Abrams because they worked on a movie together in the 90s. Like, but I, I think it is a was sign it regarding of Regarding Henry? Wasn't that like yeah, was, J.J. Abrams yeah. wrote the movie? Yeah, he was 25 when he wrote that movie. Um, it was, and, and it, I thought it was real stand up of Harrison Ford to show up, even though I'm sure he got like a million dollars for it. <laughs> and again, and again, he did not shave, which is just, just <laughs> so funny. Um, but no, I, I think in the star Wars spirit, I, that made me happy, but you're absolutely right. That like the latest up, if you, if you stop and think even a little bit, or you scrutinize the scenes, it doesn't work. And there might've been a better way, but I just, you know, you're kind of in a bad spot. And then, yeah, I, I agree with what you were saying. The the first half of this movie, in as much as like that that pace is going, and we see the, the crew working together, and there's this kind of camaraderie. I yeah. enjoy that first half. I like. I, I find the the last battle of this one, like the climactic battle of Exegol. I think this is pretty like one of the weakest climactic battles. I do too. I do um, too. I think it, I, I, part of it, part of it is the, the whole setup that the emperor is alive and he has this secret fleet of a hundred star destroyers. It's like, wait, are these really supposed to be game changers? The republic, the new republic, is destroyed and didn't have its own fleet to begin with. The yeah. first order was already dominant. They had their own fleet. It's like this. We don't need a hundred new star destroyers why is that important and the fact that they all have death star guns it's just like you're amping up the stakes that don't need to be there and then like the the built-in mechanics so and then lando disappears and then comes back with a magical million civilian ships like i didn't get anything from that when the emperor is using his lightning to 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 fry everybody like from the surface like yeah i just i I mean of, of like the three battles of like the aerial combat like the space combat the Jedi battle on the surface between Rey and, and Kylo and the Emperor, like the, the one that I'm actually most intrigued by when I'm watching it, the one that I'm following the most of all of them is Poe's mission with Jana and, and BB-8 to sabotage like the, the, the tower or Finn, something. Finn's and Finn's, yeah, sorry, Finn's. Um, when yeah. Finn and Jana are sabotaging the tower and then they like, they hijack one of the, like the, the turbo lasers from the Star Destroyer and turn it on the bridge to destroy that Star Destroyer. I was like, this is yeah. a good, this is a good little moment. So, but yeah. No, like, no. And I think, well, I think you're right. I think, yeah, you know, I, 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 it's, it's, I find it to be one of the most boring and disconnected climaxes. I think that there's a disproportionate quality to like, you go in thinking it's going to be this huge climactic battle. Mm-hmm. And I just find myself being far more interested in, Finn and Janna and BB-8, what they're doing and what Ben and Ray are doing with the Emperor. And like, it just felt like a chore. And again, the, the visuals of the space battle, the aesthetic, you know, were, were kind of dazzling, but like, it didn't make much sense. And like, I really think that plot wise, that space battle, it's fine you want it if you want to have it, but like, they should have just chopped off so much more time of that and subsumed it to the other stuff. I think a really good example of them getting that proportion right is the space battle, the star battle of Starkiller Base and Force Awakens. It was when when Poe took the uh, went on the X-wing run and destroyed it. 
Like the meat and the heart of that plot was Ray and uh, Kylo Ren's lightsaber <laughs> battle. And like, there was an obligatory maybe two and two to three minutes spent on what Poe was doing, but we knew it wasn't, like we knew they were going to be okay. We knew he was going to get the job done. And like, again, it was just like a retreat of a destroying the Death Star. So it wasn't that big a deal, but like, because it was very limited in scope, it was like kind of enjoyable to see it in tandem with like the high stakes stuff of what Ray was going to. But this thing, you just amped it up to 10 with the planet killing Star Destroyers and like, you know, like Lando bringing back like Wedge and like, you know, the entire galaxy. It's just like, you know, you burn out fast when like you overload the circuitry like that. It didn't need to be done. And I think that's one of the most disappointing uh, space battles in the entire saga. So I'm with you on that. Okay, so I, I, I had nothing else to say about those five yeah, movies. Yeah, I just say, like, it's a, it's a really enjoyable movie that I, th- I find the rewatchability quite high. I don't think it's very good, but I love it. All right, folks, uh, we are going to take a short promo break right now, but after the commercial, we will be back with our official ranking of the 11 Star Wars movies uh, and then a few other, you know, ancillary uh, categories that we want to do some top five and top three lists. So stick around. Okay, so a new podcast needs a new promo. I mean, how do I start? I'm J. David Weeder. You may know me from the internet. I didn't invent the internet, but the internet was invented for me. No, that's way too egotistical. Uh, It's got to be awesome. It's got to catch everybody's attention. Also, tell people what the show is about. So first things first, high-energy pop music from the 80s. Hi, I'm J. David Weeder, here to tell you about my new podcast, Spockward, a Star Trek podcast where I will talk about Star Trek twice a month. I guess, I guess that's pretty much it. Wow, it feels like there should be something more there, something grand and something epic. It also has to sum the show up, but I don't want to sound desperate. Maybe I should try another take, but this time there needs to be some epic epicness to it. Let's try this. In a world. Oops, 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 let me try that again. In a universe replete with Star Trek podcasts, one guy will challenge the status quo by boldly talking about Star Trek on the first and third Sunday of every month. Yeah, I probably had it right the first time. Spockword, a Star Trek podcast on the first and third Sunday of every month at spockword.com or wherever podcasts are accessed. It's Star Trek fandom with a heaping helping of social awkwardness. Spockword, you get it? Yeah, you get it. See you at spockword.com. Weeder out. Did I really just say Weeder out? Come on. We are back and we are doing our official ranking of the 11 Star Wars movies. Uh, This is my rank for the year 2020. Will these ranks hold up? I don't know. Maybe in a year I'll change my mind or something else will happen. Maybe Omar will say something that changes my mind. We'll see. Um, I've got the 11 movies ranked. I've also attached a letter grade to them to kind of. Don't lie. Okay. All right. All right. So, um, uh, and since I think, I think for the most part, the five Disney ones will be the where the interesting things. That was sort of the point of finding these. Um, I, I don't think it will surprise many people, at least from my list, that I have the classic trilogy as my one, two, three spots. Um, those have not moved. I still have Star Wars as an A+. And, you know, I used to like The Empire Strikes Back more, and I will say that The Empire Strikes Back is a better made movie. I think it is mm-hmm. a superior movie on just about every level. But as I have grown older... I just I find the sort of whimsical riding on the seat of your pants fun adventurousness of the first Star Wars movie kicks it up a little bit more. But I have Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back both at an A plus, like two of my top five all time movies. 
and then I have Return of the Jedi, and I give that mm-hmm. one an A minus. Um, mm-hmm. I've kind mm-hmm. of mentioned it before. I, I still think it's in the A range. It's still one of my favorites, but it has a lot more problems. I think Han Solo and Princess Leia. Once Han is rescued, he's they mm-hmm. largely have little to do in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything with Luke's the culmination of Luke's journey is great, and I love the Battle of Endor, um, mm-hmm. the space battle in particular. Um, now I'm going to jump down to my bottom three ranks, nine, 10 and 11, because that is all the prequels. And I know I've got friends in the podcasting community, people who I like, and I value their opinions. Some of them think the prequels and actually like, I mean, like I specifically calling out Andy Leyland here, cause I've talked to him about this. I agree with him that as a trilogy, as a sort of linear progression of story and, and consequences following character beats, I do think that the prequel trilogy works better as an overall story arc than the sequel trilogy. But that's about all I'm willing to give it credit for because dialogue, characterization, style points, overall energy and meaning and everything. Like I think the Disney movies are better than any of the prequels. I find the prequels largely boring, even if they do make a kind of sense um, narratively. And this is again where I, I kind of I, I I think they get progressively worse, and I know that is also a minority pin. I have the Phantom Menace at number nine. I give that a D. I don't think it is a failing movie um, because the skeleton of that story works for me. Um, you've got the Jedi dispatched to solve a problem with a planet being blockaded. Um, they end up having to rescue the queen, take her off planet. They have to go through these little side quests. And eventually when the greater government won't help her, she has to decide to go back to her home and lead this insurgency, this resistance movie, you teaming up her people with the natives, the Gungans who they've, you know, they, they've never united before, but this, they're going to work together to defeat their enemy. And the Jedi are tagging along for that. I think as a, as an adventure story, as a, as a ground, as a place to start, that is a great little story. Everything else about the movie, the dialogue, the pacing, the characters, the, some of the, the style and the effects bring it down, but I think it's, it's better than others. So that's a D mm-hmm. I have attack of the clones at number 10. I, I give that an F. Um, there's not much good, but there are a few things in the movie that I like very minute things in terms of like character costume designs or, or fights or things like that. I mm-hmm. do have revenge of the Sith at my bottom spot 11. I don't think it is the worst made star Wars movie, but by that point, sorry, I have zero fucks left to give by the time <laughs> I get to that movie. I don't care about these characters. I don't care who lives, who dies. Um, I don't like the look of the Jedi. I don't, like the look of Palpatine wearing a, wielding a lightsaber or Yoda with a lightsaber. The fight scenes in this, I find mostly boring. I just, I, I am completely checked out by the time I get to this movie. So I, if people have an emotional attachment to Anakin and Obi-Wan in this movie, I can understand why they might like this better. If they, if they can connect somehow to Anakin's fall from grace and, and how Palpatine is able to bring about the destruction of the Republic, I can see why they might like like this movie more at this point i don't i think this is just like the worst possible execution for this type of story so this is my worst um so that leaves the five movies that we have just spent an hour and a half covering the disney movies are right in the middle and the classic trilogy is my top three prequels is my bottom three so where are all of these these uh new ones going to be uh and i think the answers will surprise you I'm going to go a little bit out of order um, because number six, the movie right in the middle of all 11, 
I have The Last Jedi. <laughs> this is uh, the movie of course that, you do. This is the most divisive Star Wars movie that people either hate it, they think it's an abomination, or they think it's like the first or second best Star Wars movie of all time. I have it right in the middle, and it's because of what we were talking about. There are things in this movie that I love that are some of my favorite parts of Star Wars, and then there's stuff that just does not work for me, and it's like half and half. So at the end of the day, I'm left with just this very middle feeling where it's my number six. Um, however, That's great. The grade is actually a B minus. Okay. So it's still in the B range. Um, sure, I sure, don't. Sure. I don't think it's a bad. I don't think it's. It's. I mean, that puts it a little bit above average. So yeah. that. Just below that, at number seven, I have the Rise of Skywalker. The Rise of Skywalker is. I don't think is the worst of the Disney ones. This one surprised me because I was expecting. I was expecting this one to possibly be lower than the Phantom Menace for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but for everything that we talked about, if I'm able to just tune my brain to this level as just a pure adventure i think this one is like a a c or maybe c minus maybe like a c i think yeah i I don't know what it is i can just i can chill out to this one and number eight i'm sorry because my brother is not going to like hearing this but i have rogue one at number eight i think it rogue one is the weakest of the new disney ones wow yeah and there is a movie that is shot up in this list that i was not expecting yeah I, i figured this one would surprise a lot of people and again it's like Total, like, because of how much I love, like, the Battle of Scarif and the second half of it, but I just don't give a crap about these characters and the, the first half of the movie I can really easily tune out. So this means four and five. We've got two slots left. And again, another one, one that really surprised me. I've got Solo as number four. It's my favorite of the five Are Disney Are you kidding? Ones. It is. Now, here's the reason. Here's my reason. And you might, you, I can see you finding a fault with this. The other movies had higher highs than Solo, but Solo's floor was higher than any of the other ones. Like Solo did not have enough that bothered me compared to the other movies. There was nothing in Solo that I was like really got under my skin or I said I hated or turned me off of the movie. It was just kind of a pleasurable and, and kind of it was low stakes, but just as a pure adventure. I can I can watch solo and enjoy it. Stuff in The Force Awakens, there was stuff that bothered me and turned me off the whole saga a little bit and had ramifications for the other movies. Mm, but right. I mean it, the, these are close. Like Solo and The Force Awakens are both Bs. But yeah, that's how it is. So again, my order, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, Solo, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, The Rise of Skywalker, Rogue One, the Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith. So, uh, Ryan, yeah. before I get to my rankings real quick, can I ask, like, you did this rewatch of those five. They are in the middle of your rankings. And yet, you know, I'm seeing a drop. I'm seeing, like, Rogue One at number eight and Phantom Menace at number nine. Yet, like, you dislike Phantom Menace, right? Like, you dislike that movie. Like, you, for, for everything, as much as you can appreciate that other people like it and you can sort of respect that it's part of Star Wars, like, I just want to be clear that, like, these you don't dislike your least favorite Disney movies, right? No, I, I would say. I mean, yeah, we're talking a whole letter grade different. But like, here's like, I don't plan necessarily to ever watch the prequel trilogy again. I might, okay. and certainly when when Reese is old enough, I'm sure he'll want to watch all of them. And like, as part of a, like a family movie night, he, I'm sure he'll he'll see them, and I'll watch them with him, and I'll I'll talk to him about those movies. But like, there's nothing about any of the prequel movies that I necessarily want to revisit. 
in okay. and, and like any point. So like that is like the drop off. Like even with Rogue One being more disappointing, I I will go back and watch that again sometime. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean like even if it's like I, I'll go back and watch certain parts of it, like the last half hour or something like mm-hmm. whatever. But so yeah, it's 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 a it's a significant drop off in terms of my feeling that way. And you are ultimately glad you did the rewatch. The rewatch, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good. No, I'm glad that that's perfectly, perfectly again, again, reasonable. Yeah. Ranking. I, again, I, like I, I wasn't looking forward to visiting the, just because of the headspace and and feeling a kind of dread about how some of these movies would age after mm-hmm. a year plus. Um, mm-hmm. But I was, I, I found the experience of going through these five again overall very satisfying and kind of feeling a little bit happier and healthier about Star Wars as a whole. That's. That's great. I mean, that was time well spent then. Well, your solo thing aside, which is <laughs> indicative of like some type of blood clot. Uh, now, I, 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 and again, I still say solo would have been better as a Disney plus series than as a movie, but, sure. but we even, even still what they gave me. So kudos to Ron Howard for pulling that one out. Hey, a- absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Um, okay. So I'll do my rankings very quickly. Um, I, I will rank 11 to one if that's okay. And then I give a letter grade to everything. And then, but I also break them up into like five different categories of quality. Sure. So my bottom two, um, I say these bottom two are basically you fail as both movies and Star Wars movies specifically. You okay. fail as movies in general, you fail as Star Wars movies in particular. All right. At 11 is Attack of the Clones. It gets an F. Look, it's a digital, sterile slog. It's incoherent. It's middling. It's unnecessarily complicated. It is patently and relentlessly unexciting. And given the mandate that it had to sort of wipe the bad taste of Phantom Menace out of our mouths and propel a potentially exciting storyline forward, it failed. You know, like that is it is a, a, a test case for like really terrible acting. I think taking someone like Natalie Portman and making her as bad as she was is, you know, an arrestable offense. Um, you know, but again, much love to the people who love this movie. I love when people discover new Star Wars movies to love. So like I'm not I'm not a hater. Uh, it's just it's, it, it ain't my thing. Um, number 10, also in the category of you fail as a movie in a Star Wars movie, I'm given a D to Phantom Menace. Dazzling visuals, incredible hype, incredibly underwhelming, incredibly hard to follow, unmitigated disappointment with basically two very captivating scenes, um, the lightsaber and the pod race. I think that pod race is just like that pod race as a as an exercise in special effects and action stands mm-hmm. alongside if you stripped away of emotion and feeling it stands aside it stands like alone as like one of the, the great, great achievements in Lucasfilm. It really shows what Lucasfilm has been, had been up to in the 16 years post return of the Jedi. Yep. Um, so from that standpoint, from those set pieces, we're like, we're, we're quite, you know, quite good, whether enough to save the movie. No. So uh, those are my 10 and 11. My next two um, are in the category of not very good overall, lots of potential, maybe some solid material, but that just ultimately never comes together. Number nine is Revenge of the Sith gets a C minus. Um, and again, I, 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 I don't know how you ended up feeling about my analogy to Rise of Skywalker, where I was just like, this is a very good concept, horribly botched in execution. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, the just unbelievably dazzling visuals, um, that a, a very arre- potentially arresting opening scene, that space battle after the title sequence when they, you know, is it just looks beautiful, and then you know it gets into like the insect droids, which are just really weird. There's it's 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 a very busy. There's a lot going on, I think, but ultimately the execution just kind of undermines um, some very potentially mythologically powerful moments. I come away from these movies not that scared of Palpatine and Darth Vader, and that seems like a crime. You know, I think Ewan McGregor is doing the best he can, but 
you know, it's, 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 it's rough. C minus. Uh, number eight, uh, also in the category of not very good overall, lots of potential, uh, solo, I'm giving a C plus to, um, I'm, you know, no, look, no one was asking for it. Uh, I think it's occasionally fun, but it's superfluous. I think there's too much obligatory stuff. I, I find it to be competent, but thoroughly unexciting. Um, I am open to liking it in the future. Um, and you know, if they make a television series or a sequel, like I'll be there, but I just think that like, it's not the reason why I go to the movies. Uh, my next category is three. Uh, my next category of movies is numbers five, six, and seven. And I rate these as good Star Wars movies, but your mileage may vary as far as like whether you like them as movies, period. Okay. So number seven uh, uh, is Rise of Skywalker. I'm giving a B minus to. Um, again, I'm just, there's this just go with it philosophy that I have. Um, it's emotional. It's well done, even if the emotion is unearned. Um, it leans heavily on our fondness for four main characters, which is fine because I love the four main characters. It's incredibly exciting throughout, but very unintelligent. And again, I just find it, you know, reverse of Revenge of the Sith. I find it to be like a horrible, cynical, bad faith, audience insulting concept that is executed, executed very well. B minus for Rise of Skywalker. Rewatchability quotient quite high. I can watch that movie till the cows come home. It's very, very good. Um, very entertaining. Not good. <laughs> entertaining. Um, important distinction. Yeah, important distinction. That's a B minus. Number six, uh, with a solid B, is Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Hey, it's the other guys, not the you know, not the mythological characters. I like that. I think it's crafted with reverence and and competence. Um, I think it's slick. It's exciting. It's different. It's high stakes. Um, it's emotional. Ultimately, disposable characters. I totally get that. But like as a window into another part of the Star Wars universe, cinematically. I'm a huge fan. Rewatchability uh, quotient, particularly as an action movie, is quite high. Uh, I give a B. Um, and then um, number five, I'm um, giving a B plus to uh, episode six, Return of the Jedi. B plus for Return of the Jedi. Look, most of the characters are basically going through the motions at this point, but as a Luke and Darth Vader denouement and character study, it's incredibly compelling. I think it does a very good job wrapping a bow on the original trilogy. I think it gets a lot of unnecessary criticism. Um, I think too much has been made of the Ewoks on both sides. Like in the sense where it's just like, they were never as cute and as engaging as some, as kids and some people want to make them out to be. And I think, but I don't think they were nearly as offensive as other people made them out to be. Just leave the Ewoks alone. They're fine. Like, and, and like I was saying in the last Van Halen podcast about David Lee Roth, <laughs> I do find that a little bit of Ewok goes a long way. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't necessarily want to burn out on that particular demographic. So, so yeah, so that's number five. That's the categories of like good Star Wars movies. Your mileage may vary in terms of evaluating them as movies, period. Okay. Uh, my next two, my numbers three and four, these are in the category as excellent as movies and excellent as Star Wars movies in particular. Um, number four is the, the Force Awakens. I'm giving it an A minus. Um, really quickly, we went through a lot of this for giving me Ray and BBA, for making me leave the movie theater full of excitement, for being a great modern example of a modern day blockbuster, for sucking me back into Star Wars, for like balancing nostalgia and like forward thinking quite fine, for like you know for for positing a plot that has Luke Skywalker has vanished, for being thoroughly exciting, for outstanding character development. For exciting table setting, for making bold character choices while being unashamedly retro, Force Awakens is like one of the great, you know, one of the great big budget movies of the last twenty years. A minus. 
Number three, also in the category of excellent as movie as a movie, excellent as a Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi, solid A. Um, for challenging the Jedi myth, for making me never know what's going to happen next, for making me uncomfortable, for making aggressive points about failure, for making Luke Skywalker real, for giving me fully realized new characters who doubt themselves and who fight back against insurmountable odds, like we are the spark that'll light the fire, that'll burn the First Order down. Like, I love all of that. Um, They fail and they keep getting back up. Um, They subvert my expectations in an intelligent way. Like, I love The Last Jedi. It has just gotten better and better with time. Flaws and all. The flaws you describe are like there and they they are part of the movie they're part of the movie's legacy that's fine there are some parts that take me out of the movie i'm fine with it it's a great movie and then my top two predictably i just call the iconic um anyone is fine as number two anyone is fine as number one they're both a pluses star wars new hope is my number two for being funny as hell for being the og as the kids say for giving me flesh and blood heroes and for blending seemingly unblendable genres in you know the, the the swords and sorcery in the western and science fiction putting all those disparate elements together it is one of the like five or ten greatest movies of all time it changed the way we looked at movies so like much respect um number one unsurprising uh, a plus empire strikes back and i would just say for like simply being one of the most visually and thematically invented movies ever made for taking a great movie a great exciting movie like star wars and expanding and deepening the mythology like number one um i don't think there's such a thing as like, a, I don't think it's a bad idea to get in, to be a fan of any Star Wars movies. I think there's a grid, big gradation. I think that's fine. I think the Disney movies have like added to the legacy. I'm very excited about them. But like, man, Empire Strikes Back is one of the five greatest movies ever made. Yeah, can't, can't argue with that. Uh, we, we had the same two movies in our top two spots. Just we flipped the order. Um, and I... I perfectly understand as i as i said i think the empire strikes back is a better made movie i just mm-hmm. uh, my my feelings have kind of flipped well i think we had the prequels as our our bottom three just to slightly yep. order. we both had the rise of skywalker as number seven so that yep. was like the, the yeah, only and, one and, and, and i think we both gave them like a b minus we both gave it a b minus i have it in a c my my grades oh, on the whole were lower than yours okay um, but okay. um yeah yeah Okay, um, we can just go in through a few more minutes and we'll try to hit some of these in a little bit quicker. Um, mm-hmm. But we did have a few other categories that we were thinking about. Um, mm-hmm. The top five large scale battles or could be chases or major sort of action set pieces. Um, mm-hmm. With this, I was, I, I don't know actually if I told you, but I was kind of thinking pretty much anything bigger than like the battle at Jabba's sail barge, um, kind of more okay. spectacular than that, that involved bigger ships and kind of like bigger kind of like action set pieces. Um, okay. I'll go through, I'll go through my five. Number one, and again, considering where I gave, the, where I put the movie, this is really saying something, but the Battle of Scarif in Rogue One. Ah, one. Nice. Um, I particularly like the space battle portion of it with seeing mm-hmm, the starfighters mm-hmm. again, old and new, getting involved. Mm-hmm. This is, that's just what I loved. I really, really love when the, um, the, the tie, the Y wings, you know, disable one of the star destroyers with the, the ion guns. And then, yep. The, the Admiral Raddus calls in the Hammerhead Corvette to ram the starters. Oh, takes, yeah. takes out the whole shield generator platform and everything. That little sequence. Uh, oh, I love that so much. So that's my first big battle, my favorite one. Um, number two, 
the Battle of Endor, uh, again, specifically mm-hmm. thinking, well, I mean, all, all three parts are important from the lightsaber yeah. battle in the throne, the battle on the forest moon with Han, Leia, and the, the mm-hmm. Ewoks. Um, but I also, I really, really like the space battle with Lando and Wedge and Admiral Akbar leading their small fleet trapped between forget, the Death Star. Don't you dare forget Lando's little friend. <laughs> and Nienum, yeah, Lando's little yeah. friend. Trapped between the Death Star and the Star Destroyers. And when Lando's saying, engage them, get them closer, or get closer to the fleets and everything. You know, that, that A-wing fighter suicide bombing the Super Star Destroyer's bridge, flying into the bowels of the Star Destroyer and everything. Was, that, just, a, so was that a known suicide? Was that a planned suicide? Or was he just shot and was careening out of control and just happened I, to be? In, I, I never got I, that. I he, his his ship was flying. I think I think he was in trouble, but I think I think he was per- intentionally aiming it right for the okay, bridge. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, great, that was, team, great. That team. was how I've interpreted. I think I think that was fine. Like his ship was disabled, but he was basically taking it down there because he could. Because at that point, mm-hmm. they had lost their bridge deflector shield. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, number three, the Battle of Yavin, the OG, as you said, like yep. with the the the, uh, the the heroes. Again, I used to like the Battle of Hoth more than this one, but now just mm-hmm. as I've come to like as the culmination of Luke's personal journey in the first movie, you know, this is the thing that they set up with Obi-Wan saying, I understand you've become quite a great pilot yourself. Mm-hmm. And for him to actually take this thing, you know, the, the, the block of the staging of the battle is a little bit clunky at some points because of like the, the mechanics of the trench, but I love it. Um, the battle of Hoth at number four, just mm-hmm. the visual distinction of having them fight in on the surface of the snow covered plane, the AT-ATs, the fact that the heroes lose, it's just a delaying action. And then number five, I think actually the Kessel run from Solo and everything. Interesting. Flying against the TIE fighters because of like, and I'll come back to this one a little bit later, but like having Han, it's it's Han's first time flying the Falcon and with Chewie yeah. getting in with him. Um, and they're able to, you know, like just fly and take out these TIE fighters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'd like it. That's great. I mean, there's a lot of overlap in our top five. So real quick, number one, the Rebel Assault on Scare. Like mm-hmm. that's my number one. I'm sorry. I love that you, I love that that's your number one. I, I think, yeah, just for all the reasons you so articulately point out, um, it is. And you know, what's interesting about it is I'm so invested in the space battle and like, I don't know any of those guys. Like I, I know vaguely <laughs> like, you know, red leader and everything, but like, and, and that's part of why I love my number two so much on uh, my number two selection so much, the, the return of the Jedi, the Endor assault, you know, Lando is not like a long established character, but like, He's being, and he, and if anything, he was kind of a villain the last time he turned out to be. And like the fact that he's like such a core component of this battle and like he's like sort of our eyes and ears up in space, that's just an incredibly exciting, well pulled off battle. You know, and the Battle of Endor is great, but I think it's the space component of it that makes it so wonderful. So that's my number two. So our number two is aligned. Uh, number three, I think we just kind of disagree on the logistics of this. But yeah, I think that opening space battle in The Last Jedi. Um, with the dreadnoughts, the star destroyers, the X-wings, and the, the bombers um, in front of the Ilenian system, while the resistance escapes the base, um, I, it's wonderful. It's dazzling. It's like a jolt. It mixes up like pathos and humor and like grief and like like you said, like Rose's sister. It just makes us kind of weep for someone we hardly ever know. I argue that other than the New Hope, it's probably the most exhilarating opening scene in a Star Wars movie. And the only reason New Hope is better and more exhilarating was because we'd never seen anything like that before. Sure. sure. Um, so uh, number four is the OG, the New Hope, Death Star space battle. Like obviously, like you know, technologically, cinematically, it's, it's right. it does not necessarily the mechanics of it don't age super well. But it's damned if I'm not, you know, just if I don't get sucked in every single time. 
Right. Um, and, and, you know, I like the component of like Luke out in the field, Luke, like as part of a battle, um, because as, as the movies go on, he just kind of separates himself and it's all about Luke operating separately in the, the, the giant mythology. Good to remember how good of a pilot he was. Um, number five, also, you're going to disagree because then it's, it's a quick moment, not even an overarching scene. I just think that Holdo maneuver is just beyond. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. In the, you know, in, in the effect it is, and it just emotionally the way they place it, like the way they, they take out the sound. <laughs> um, and coming and coming in the middle of like the you know Finn and Rose about to be executed ostensibly and like Ray and Kylo like about to be fighting over the lightsaber just just chef's kiss just absolutely wonderful so no I think other than my last Jedi nonsense there's a lot of overlap between you and me all right cool um, the top five lightsaber duels or melee fights or small scale combats. Um, mm-hmm. I did want to include two runners up that didn't quite make my Me list. Me too. I did that too. <laughs> All right. Um, so one of them that I had that didn't make my top five, but it was Ray versus Kylo Ren on the Death Star wreckage in okay. in the Rise of Skywalker. Um, and another one that I I've always liked, but it hasn't aged as well is Obi Wan versus Jango Fett on Kamino in uh, Attack of the Clones, just because that was okay. the first time we ever saw a Jedi fight a non Jedi in a battle that mm-hmm. was more or less even up, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of competency. Level. Levels, and it was a different setting, so I, I used to like that one. It hasn't aged as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but going through, so my top five: number one, Ray and Kylo Ren versus the Praetorian Guard in the Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When when Kylo turns on his master, Ray catches the lightsaber. They their look that they're united and they're back to back. You know, for the first time, we see this hero and villain who might be a hero uh, working together for a common cause. They're outnumbered. The Praetorians have these cool weapons. It's a really nice matchup, beautifully choreographed. Love the scenes, how it like flows from one to the other and how they take them out. Just great action. Oh, and just like the look of the room with the stark red background and mm-hmm. it's slowly catching fire. And like the, the scenery is kind of disintegrating before our eyes as they're fighting. Uh, yes. I just love that moment so much is my favorite like small scale battle mm-hmm. um number two then we're going classic luke versus darth vader in empire strikes back the all, mm-hmm. all battles and you could look at the entire like all of cloud city like they've got three different battles you could put them all together i particularly like the first one in the carbon freezing chamber because of the mm-hmm. setting i have always loved the look of that room uh and that chamber with the harsh light it's such an numbers. evil ominous yeah. room yeah um, number three, Luke versus Vader again, this time in Return of the Jedi, um, the culmination of their path when when Luke is able to beat him down and everything mm-hmm. and, and in front of the Emperor and, and mm-hmm. when Luke finally shows his father mercy and is able to reject the dark side that way. Number four, Rey versus Kylo Ren in The Force Awakens, their fight in the woods um, mm-hmm. is great. And number five, this one surprised me because I kind of had a felt like a backlash against this one, but I mm-hmm. am putting in the top five Qui Gon Jinn and Obi Wan Kenobi versus Darth Maul from the Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. I used to I used to love this battle when I first saw it. I thought it was the highlight of that movie. And then I started like kind of just reaction thinking, you know, the, the choreography is more staged. It doesn't feel organic. We don't really care about these characters. So who cares who wins this fight? Mm-hmm. I didn't care that much about this one. Just a few days ago, um, if, for those of you listening, if you have Disney Plus, you're probably watching The Mandalorian. There's another show called Disney Gallery. And like the first, they've got like eight, I think eight episodes, um, all about the Mandalorian. It's basically like the behind the scenes featurettes. And they talk to the different directors. They talked about the music. They go into all of these little things, each little mini episode, um, getting some background information about it. There's in one of the episodes, they're talking to Dave Filoni, 
who is um, one of the directors and showrunners. He also, he was behind all of their animated series from the Clone Wars to uh, the Rebels and stuff like that. And he's he's been part of Lucasfilm for a couple of years. Diehard fanboy. He actually had this thing. He, he started talking about when a conversation that he had with George Lucas. And it actually made me... I mean, when you when you listen to him, you understand why people in this business love George Lucas. Even though, for some of us fans, we we feel kind of like a, we're in an abused relationship with him because of how much we were disappointed by the way he did the prequels. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was talking about the importance of that battle between Darth Maul and Qui Gon, and the fact what like the why that battle is important to me now has less to do with the actual fight and more to do with the consequence. What mm-hmm. happens because Darth Maul kills Qui Gon Jinn in that moment? Even though we don't know those characters very well and we'll never see them again, in, at least in the movies, that really sets up everything that happens afterwards because. Mm-hmm. Qui-Gon Jinn, what little we do know about him is that he has this different view of the Force and the nature of the Jedi and the Force than everybody else in the Jedi Order. And it's mm-hmm. made him a little bit of an outcast. Obi-Wan mm-hmm. says the re- you would be on the council if you thought more like them. But Ky- or, sorry, Qui-Gon believes that love and family and human connections and relationships are an important part of the jet are important part of the force and that the Jedi are wrong to push those things aside. So when he meets Anakin Skywalker, he has that connection and he sees the spark in this kid and he believes in him and he wants to take this kid, not just as they, a master and apprentice, but Qui-Gon could be the father that Anakin never had. Mm-hmm. I also think it's that's really good. In in my head canon, Qui Gon actually slept with Shmi Skywalker the night before the uh, the pod race. Um, I think they've got the looks that show that. But <laughs> when you compare that, how does Obi Wan feel about Anakin in that first movie? Before he even meets him, he tells Qui Gon, "He's like, why do I feel like we've picked up another you know wretched life form or something like that?" He's comparing him to, to Jar Jar, and he's very kind of dismissive. He tells it, he's like, "The boy is dangerous. Everybody knows that." So. Mm-hmm. When Obi-Wan has to take over the mentorship of Anakin, he's not doing it as a father. He's like a a reluctant older brother that has Mm -hmm. to pick up the raising this kid because he's now the man of the house. It's an obligation and Mm -hmm. they could be really good friends as, as they grow and their bond develops, but it's not the same bond. And Anakin maybe needed a father. And in the absence of that, the approval and the praise that he got from the emperor, from Palpatine sort of subverted that and perverted that. And where does that go? That that absence of a father figure. Well, then when you see Luke's journey and at the end, what that father-son relationship is able to do when Luke says, I'm a Jedi like my father before me, that sparks something in old-ass Anakin that realizes that this family that he never had could be there if he could save his son. And that's what's able to turn him. So in this really weird backwards ass way, I've come to like the Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan versus Darth Maul fight, not because of the actual mechanics of the fight, even though it's, it's choreographed very well. And it's a dizzying fun little event, like fight with a double bladed lightsaber. But I have a new appreciation for the stakes of that just because of, I never thought it mattered that they both died in that one. Who cares? But the fact that that's Darth Maul kills Qui-Gon there sort of sets up the ruin of Anakin Skywalker and where the saga goes from there. Listen, as a backstory and as a background and context, I, I, I find that, you know, beyond reproach, that makes a lot of sense. 
I will say that like there's a lot of heavy lifting going on um, sure, to make that yeah, to make that scene stick. Yeah, no. See, all of that stuff is there, but it's yeah, like yeah, a yeah. third person to explain it because the movie did not explain it. Sure. Okay. So I, no, I that it. doesn't that doesn't make me like the Phantom Menace better, or it doesn't make me forgive George Lucas because I still yeah. think he failed in his storytelling technique if he yeah. had to tell that to somebody else and that person mm-hmm. delivered the message of that movie through like a third person like hearsay that doesn't that doesn't endear the phantom menace to me it just yeah, yeah. a little bit a new context into that contextualizes the scene a little yeah. bit yeah no it, it totally makes sense i i I'm, I'm bragging on you but you're right I, I will say that it does sometimes remind me of like when there are defenders of the prequels they're just like well you have to understand like the cartoon puts so much of these characters right. into it's a like, better yeah, context that, and i'm just like help. dude if you have to rely on a cartoon to explain your movie your movie has failed but i totally get where you're coming from uh, okay, so that was my top five. So, what are your five? Uh, your no, you didn't your... give your honorable mentions. No, I did the the, the Death oh. Star wreckage and and Obi Wan oh, versus right, Jango Fett. Okay, real quick. Uh, my honorable mentions are Qui Gon and Obi Wan versus Darth Maul. Okay. Um, simply for the the crisp and professionalism and the choreography and the fact that the first time I saw it was very exciting. When I rewatch it, it's look, it is cold, it is sterile. I think your explanation is sufficient and perhaps it'll make me enjoy it more. I think on technical level alone, it warrants an honorable mention. My other honorable mention, even though it is, I hate myself for saying it because it's so fan service, is Darth Vader and Rogue One. Um, as a, as a, as a, you know, exit point of mm-hmm. a, a very exciting end ending battle sequence, it was chilling. And it was just, you know, it is a, for all the talk about how bleak and dark uh, Empire Strikes Back and like, Turn of the or, and uh, uh, Last Jedi and Revenge of the Sith are like the ending of Rogue One is is not fun. Um, <laughs> you know, everyone dying on Scarif is bad enough, and like Jin and Cassian holding each other. As much as as you're right that they are like two dimensional like characters, it's still like upsetting to see them die and perish, and to see Darth Vader at the end just slicing and dicing through. It was it, it was this moment of like potential energy unlocking in a way that we were waiting for Anakin, you know, in those prequels to like kind of unleash that force before he became kind of like a cartoon character. Um, so, so no, it, it's exciting. It's stark. It's a very fitting coda to a very dark movie. Um, and one last moment, you know, series of moments to make your heart jump um, before you get to the very end. So that's an honorable mention. Another honorable mention. Number five, Luke Skywalker, Jabba's Palace um, on oh, the yeah. barge. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, and, and I think, yeah, it's exciting. It's well choreographed. It's done. But you have to understand, you know, contextually, it's also like Luke is back. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Like he's back. And like, you know, a lot of times when you saw him before, there was a lot of like in the beginning of the movie, there was a lot of huffing and puffing by him. And he has this like the confidence and the tone, this don't mess with me tone. But like that's where it's just like, oh, he's 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 figured some stuff out. There's nothing tentative about his movements. I didn't think about that in the same context for this category, but that, yeah, that, the, the sail barge thing is one of my all time favorite action scenes. Uh, yeah, I didn't mean to cheat. Yeah. So, number four is for the reasons you articulate quite well uh, uh, Kylo Ren and Ray and Force Awakens. Uh, again, I would just, you know, I, do, I have no patience for people who are just like, ah, how did she get so powerful so fast? I, I don't care. Like she's very good. Like she's very good. Like the emotional moment when the lightsaber flies into her hands, you know, Mark Hamill talks, you know, is on the record complaining good naturedly about force awakens and talking about how he was flipping through the script and like waiting for his big arrival. And he, he assumed that it was going to be at that moment. Like, you know, when the lightsaber flies out of the snow, 
how perfect is it that it flies in the Daisy Ridley's hands? And how oh, yes. perfect is it, is it that like she's such she just looks so amateurish when she does it, but she's so powerful. I love that fight. I love when he's like yelling at her that she needs a teacher and he mentions the force and she says force and like she gets all calm. Just really, really well done. Okay, so that's my number four. For the moment, for the reasons you perfectly articulate, Luke and Vader and Return of the Jedi for number three is my number three. For the reasons you articulate so well, Luke and Vader in Cloud City is my number two. And for the reasons you articulate so well, <laughs> The Last Jedi Throne Room Battle is my number one. All right, so we're pretty much the same way for our top five. Yeah. Almost, almost. Yeah. Um, all right, then uh, category the top five Millennium Falcon moments. I think the new mm-hmm. movies did very well by the, the yeah. Millennium Falcon. Um, so for my number one, I've got the Escape from Jakku. Um, basically, I just I oh wow, the whole thing. okay. Once once Finn and and Ray jump in the the Millennium Falcon with BB-8 when they're like doing barrel rolls and BB-8 is rolling along the walls and falling down. Uh, I, I love that thing. Uh, number two, Into the Death Star from Return of the Jedi when Lando and Nian Num are leading uh, the, the final assault charge to destroy the Death Star. Number mm-hmm. three, uh, the, the flight through the asteroid field in The Empire Strikes Back when they're being chased mm-hmm. by the TIE Fighters. Number mm-hmm. four, um, the, the Falcon's appearance at the Battle of Krayt in The Last Jedi when they take out the TIE Fighters and draw them all off uh, into, the, uh, into the caverns in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then number five again, uh, the 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 Kessel Run from Solo again. It's Han's first time piloting the Falcon. Um, Chewie gets in like the, in the seat next to him, it, like takes over as co-pilot, and the music swells like a familiar Star Wars theme swells because they're sitting together. And it's like this is where they belong. This is where we know them. Uh, and it's just yeah, that's a great little moment. Uh, yeah, a lot of overlap with us. I do have one honorable mention that I'll get to at the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, so my number one, uh, I don't think you had this. Uh, I, I am just a huge fan of this moment. This is the very end of Empire Strikes Back. R2-D2, like, blasting it. I thought it of it. That, that would have been my honorable mention. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, no, I just, for a lot of reasons, I think, for some whatever reason, that scene is, like, largely forgotten in terms of, like, the pulse-pounding, exciting moments from those movies. But, like, I think people tend to, like, not remember. Like, it was, look, it was touch and go there for a yeah, while. No, that was a great, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it just, again, it epitomized for me that, like, yeah, you don't have R2-D2 in these movies. You are thoroughly screwed. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, he had just been sidelined except to be, like, Luke's pal in this one. So, where in the first one he had a lot of heroic heavy lifting. Um, so, number two is, I actually, did you, I don't know, I think you mentioned this, or maybe you did, and I just forgot. Like, so, saving Luke and destroying the Death Star at the end of A New Hope. Oh no! Not destroying, not destroying the Death Star, but saving Luke so Luke could destroy the Death Star. Right? right yeah, like, I didn't. I didn't have that one. Yeah. Okay, so Luke's gone, but for that, so I just wanted to make sure. Okay. Yep. Um, number three is the escape from Jakku that you mentioned. My number four is the Battle of Crate that you mentioned. Um, my number five, I really battled between these two um, because I thought they were like part and parcel of the same sequence. I was originally going to say, like, you know, when they, like, turned the thing around and attacked Captain Nita's Star Destroyer and then disappeared oh, by yeah. virtue of landing on it. Um, I think that's good. I think that warrants an honorable mention. Uh, so I have two honorable mentions. That's one of them. So this one is the asteroid attack, which I just think is just a wonderfully paced, pulse-pounding uh, action moment. So, yeah. so yeah, you're right on that. So my two honorable mentions are, one, attacking Captain Needham and disappearing, which is just just wonderful. Yeah. Um, and then this is a kind of an offbeat one, um, and it just goes to how much I love Last Jedi. Um, it's a, a moment a lot of people don't meet, don't mention a lot, um, because they talk a lot about in The Force Awakens, Han Solo finally getting into the cockpit of the Millennium when Falcon. When Luke sneaks looking, aboard, yeah. 
oh god, that moment when he like flips on the 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 the, the cockpit and the power, yeah. like, and he has this haunted look on his face, but like this this nostalgic, somewhat nostalgic look on his face. That is just the cinematography there. That is just absolutely gorgeous. And it, I, I'd like to think that R two D two meeting R two D two and you know. Uh, getting him to motivate, you know, the, the, see the video of Princess Leia from A New Hope. I get that that's what puts him over the edge. But I think getting into the Falcon, turning it on and just being overcome by memories, like, and the haunted look on his face. I love that. And I, I just, you know, not enough is made of like Luke Skywalker's connection with the Millennium Falcon. But like, he has it, you know, like, it is very deep. And it is a connection to his past. And just, I, I really much, I love that scene quite a bit. Uh, all right, Omar, since uh, you were just on the show two episodes ago, even though that was a while ago, um, you have already answered the last of the galactic questionnaires. Uh, so I'm going to give you a, a different type of question, a secret question. Uh, and I'm extending shout out to the Secret Wars and Beyond podcast because they always have these secret questions. Um, so this is what I'm going to ask. Let's say Disney taps you to develop three new Disney Plus series based on characters or concepts from each of the major eras. So the prequel era, which can include the Clone Wars cartoon, uh, Mm -hmm. the classic era, um, everything from the original trilogy, also Rogue One, Solo, Rebels, whatever, and then Mm -hmm. the sequel era. You Mm -hmm. can make a series from each of those three. What characters or concepts are you doing? Oh, I love this question. This is such a great question. So just to be clear, this is three television series? Uh, or, you know, it, it could be, it, or it could be, you know, a solo movie, an indiv- a one-shot movie, I guess it could be. I was thinking okay. of a series, but it doesn't have to be. Let's say okay. three projects. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I'm stealing your idea. I'm a thief. I've been talking to you during this pod, the second half of this podcast, but secretly I've been thinking about how good your idea of pr- uh, Princess Leia uh, coordinating with her dad, Bail Organa, on Alderaan. I would I would take that and like turbocharge it from not just the stuff leading up to the the the, the Rogue One attack on Scarif, um, but I, I think that like the, the 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 fallout from you know a breaking breaking away from the Empire and Leia's role in it that is a a a a, a movie for me that is a movie and that is a potential series of movies but like I would do that okay. um, so that that's one and I I just so that I would like be in that the, like the classic era. That would be classic era. So prequel era, um, I like this idea of the 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 non-Anakin, non-Obi-Wan like Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um and, and again, non-Anakin, non-Obi-Wan, non what's her name that we all love um Ahsoka. from Clone Wars. Yeah, Ahsoka. Like those tangential Jedi's, the ones that get like gunned down in Revenge of the Sith, I would just kind of like to see their journey, not as necessarily connected to the mythology. Like freed from the chains of like the Skywalker stuff, but just like their own journey as Jedi mm-hmm. um, and interacting with the Republic writ large. I think that's like a dynamite television series. I, I think it's a dynamite television series. Yep. Um, again, freed from like everything Skywalker, just just dealing with the politics of the Republic, dealing with you know their own like journey with the Force, their own disillusionment, their own whatever, um, and dealing with the escalating tensions between their role as like, you know, guardians of the Republic and the discomfort of like being part of the military. So like part, some, some Clone Wars themes, but in a non, completely non-Skywalker context. And then the yeah, last one. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I, my, my last one is I want, I want three more movies with Ray Poe and Finn. Okay. <laughs> I want, so I want three more movies their... with Ray Yeah. And like, you know, to, 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 in a dig, it can be freed from like Ray's, you know, like, like heritage questions and it can just be like, 
if anything, like Rise of Skywalker and Force Awakens showed me that, like, as a hangout proposition, I want these three to go on journeys. I want these, you know, I want to know what the next step is. And, and you know, it's a real bummer that for justifiably Boyega is just like, yeah, I'm going to need a break. And that Poe Dam, you know, like that Oscar Isaac is like, I don't know that I really want to do this anymore. But I do feel like I do feel like if you give him if you bring him back. And you like make a deal with like Oscar Isaac that like okay you'll die in like the first movie <laughs> like I you know I and, and you know you know what I mean at the beginning he was he was all in he was like totally committed because he actually yep. voiced that character in the Resistance cartoon I that animated that. series uh, okay. Poe Dameron was in a couple of episodes and Oscar okay. Isaac lent his voice to that so at least in the beginning of like four or five years ago, he was all about that role. Yeah. And so, so like, you know, again, they're, they have been put through the ringer. Um, and, and I am, I am so grateful that like Daisy Ridley has not come out and been like, yeah, I'm done with this crap that she has at least kept her cards close to her vest. I, I know that, you know, Boyega is just for the, you know, for the whole experience is like a little bit embittered. I would like to think that with the passage of time, um, you know, and a whole lot of money, they can be lured back. And, you know, listen, if Harrison Ford can come back, I think anything is possible. Um, I, I will say I don't have 40 years to like sit around and wait. So I do hope it's sooner rather than later. But I think those characters have earned the right, uh, not only earned the right for, you know, another like spin at the wheel and another narrative arc, but like they have captured my imagination and like captured my heart and captured my brain to the point where I'm just like, I want to see what these guys do. Okay, be Ray Skywalker. But what are you going to do now, Ray Skywalker? Mm-hmm. And how are you going to get your friends, Poe and Finn, to help you? And then is BB-8 going to come along? That's what I want. And I know that's not, like, terribly original. But, like, I, I you know, that's how good a positive, good and positive a feeling I have about the Disney movies and the impression they've left me with. All right. I'm going to give my answers because I actually came up with answers for those questions. Sure. Um, for the prequel era, I'm digging into the Clone Wars mythology from the, from the animated series. And mm-hmm. I would like to explore the Night Sisters of Dathomir. Um, these okay. were like these creepy little force wielding witches. Um, they all dressed in like dark red, like crimson robes. Uh, it was like the secret order. Um, and I just find it, I would like to explore something because they have the force, but they're not the Sith. They're not Jedi. They don't use lightsabers. Uh, they just have the kind of their own little creepy practices and they're like witches. It's like an order of evil, dark sorceresses. Um, so something like that. I, I, I liked them in the cartoon and I would like to do more of that. From the classic trilogy era, uh, this was something, an idea, I think, I don't remember if it was me or if it was Dave Weider, but on a previous episode, we talked about this. Basically, a Tales from the Moss Eisley Cantina anthology series. Mm-hmm. Um, just where basically every episode is like a different character from the Moss Eisley Cantina. And you could have it set maybe the same day that uh, like Luke and Obi-Wan walked in and met Han and like have it kind of like as a, something in the background. But, you know, one one episode would be what was Greedo doing that day up until the point where he got shot? Um, you know, like, like a, a shaman thing. Yeah. Something about the bartender or something like that. But OK. Yeah. And then for the sequel. I really, I really deeped in. And I was like, what, what's something that's really obscure and something that I didn't necessarily like that I could actually have fun with? And I went to Canto Bites. The whole purpose of Finn and Rose going on that mission was they were supposed to meet the master codebreaker who was played in a very small by Justin Thoreau. Yeah. I would actually like to explore that character and play with that and ha- like basically give him a, like a little series or a movie or something where he is this galaxy renowned spy and information thief and scoundrel, but super high class walks around in tuxedo. He's like Timothy Dalton's James Bond in License to Kill. 
and basically make this whole story where they were almost in this guy's presence. They almost met this guy and got him to help, but they got arrested instead and they had to rely God, on Benicio Del Toro. So. Damn it, Ryan. Your answers are so much more specific and interesting. Than I, I had 24 hours to think about these. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Your, 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 your options seconds. are very good. Your yep. options are very, very good. Uh, and honest, honest God, like what you said about like Princess Leia's character, like and how she figured into like, you know, the, the formatation of uh, the rebellion and like leading up to the Rogue One events. Like, I really think there's something there. Um, <laughs> I think that's a really wonderful idea. All right, buddy. Um, Omar, thank you very much for being on another episode of Give Me Those Star Wars. Um, always love having you on the network. I hope that uh, we will continue this conversation in a couple of months. Um, uh, you, we, we Listeners, we do have plans. Omar will be on a future episode of uh, Fire and Water Records. Um, and not just the one, Van Halen one that you just heard, but another one. And uh, hopefully Rob will have you back on Pod Dylan again some point soon. Oh, yeah. No, we've got a, we've got a lot of stuff coming up. Uh, so, so, no, I'm really excited. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I'm, I'm always so happy to talk about Star Wars with you and to sort of hopefully gauge how reignited your interest can be. I'm, I'm thanks for uh, doing that Disney rewatch and talking to me about it. I'm happy that... Um, um, I'm glad I'm glad you pushed this. I'm glad you pushed this because this made me feel happier about the franchise. So, yeah. So why don't we let it breathe for a while and come (laughs) back and check in on how you're doing? All right, folks, uh, we're going to take another promo break right now, but I will be back after that to answer your listener feedback from the last episode way back in May. I think Uh, don't go away. You are receiving a transmission from the rod pod. Upload pending. Stand by for soundtrack transfer. I am Maggie. And I am John. And we are trapped, hurtling through space in a ship shaped like Rodimus's head. The ship, for reasons we haven't been able to determine, contains the entire run of the IDW Transformers Phase 2 comic. Which chronicle the events following the end of the war between the Autobots and Decepticons. So we figure we may as well read them all in order and report our findings to you. Stand by. Stand by. Upload complete now. Pod. Look for us at marriedwcomics.libsyn.com, at iTunes, at Stitcher, or wherever good podcasts can be found. So, uh, till all are one. Till all are one. All right, the last episode of Give Me Those Star Wars came out way back on May 4th, because May the 4th be with you and all that. On it, John Schaefer Hames and I discussed the classic novelization to the original Star Wars movie, emphasizing a lot of the differences between the novel adapted from George Lucas's original treatment and script and what made it into the final film, as well as odd little details that contradict established continuity now. John actually left a comment on the episode after our talk. He said, I've been amused lately by some of the -the over-the-top vitriol in some internet places about how so much of The Rise of Skywalker was left out of the movie and is only explained in the novelization. Folks, have I got news for you. Yeah, no kidding. That's, That's kind of always been the way, as we said. 
Uh, Siskoid from here on the Fire and Water Network said, The French edition of this was in my fifth grade classroom, and it's how I first experienced the Star Wars story, though technically I had already seen The Empire Strikes Back in theaters the year before, albeit with my dad translating and geeksplaining everything. Very cool, that's cool. Uh, I'm always mildly interested in how certain fictitious concepts in fantasy and sci-fi are translated into other languages. Like, how much of the concept gets across if you use different words? Or, I don't know. (laughs) I'm I'm interested in that. Anyway, uh, Chris Franklin, also from here on the Fire and Water Network, said, I've always wondered about the whole Academy thing as well. It seems hard to imagine Luke would ever sign up for the Empire in any way, and you would think, retcons in place, Uncle Owen would really try to steer him clear of Daddy's footsteps. You know, that's actually a good point, and looking at it with the retconned knowledge of where Luke Skywalker comes from, that could inform Uncle Owen's insistence that Luke stay on the farm forever. That's that's not a hard leap to make at all. Uh, Andrew Leyland from the Palace of Glittering Delights and other podcasts said, Now you need to cover the Return of the Jedi novel just for the bit where Obi-Wan says Owen Lars was his brother, Canon? What canon? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I read the Jedi novelization as a kid, and when Luke is talking to Obi-Wan's ghost after Yoda dies, Obi-Wan drops some factoids that aren't in the movie. Revelations about his own backstory and exactly how Anakin became so disfigured and turned into Darth Vader. Some of those details were ignored or changed for the prequel movies, but Lucas did keep the big point that Obi-Wan and Anakin dueled near a volcano or a pit of lava, and that's how Anakin was so damaged. So that much continuity, at least, was maintained when the prequels came out uh, 20 years later. Uh, Neil Daly from Fire and Water Records said, This is really cool. I've never read any of the novelizations, although I do believe we had one. Yep, as I was just mentioning to Andy's comment, uh, we had the Return of the Jedi novelization in our home library. Uh, Neil continues, But my earliest memories were from the 1977 vinyl LP, The Story of Star Wars, which had narration along with movie dialogue and Williams' score. Fun bit of trivia... The LP was the first use of a stormtrooper yelling, close the blast doors, before Han and Chewie jumped through. That line wasn't in the original theatrical release, and was only added in the special edition, but it was obviously filmed for the original. I always thought it was cool, and even as a kid, made me wonder how much was left out. That's cool. I I mean... I have no memory of that LP because, obviously, being a couple of years younger, by the time I was old enough to really engage with the material, we had the three movies recorded on a VHS tapes. I didn't need to read the story of Star Wars or listen to the album to remember that stuff because I could watch the movies any time I wanted. And that's what I did. I watched them all the time. Um, knowing that it was kind of like the case of just when I was born, when I came of age, I, I am always a little bit fascinated by the people who, you know, didn't, couldn't own the movie as soon as it came out, that they had to recreate scenes from the movie through other kinds of media, like the books, like the magazines, or, or the albums, things like that. Very cool. Uh, David Ace Gutierrez said they had to fill page count. That means kitchen sinking this stuff. Uh, Mike Dine said, I really liked some of the points you made about a reboot, but I don't like the idea of a reboot of Star Wars. 
the convoluted, complicated continuity is one of the reasons I love Star Wars so much. Like my favorite comics, you can write new stories with new characters to bring in new readers without ignoring everything that happened before. For me, that's what The Mandalorian did so well. Having said that, I would most likely watch the reboot and would probably enjoy it so they already got their claws in me. Yeah, that's, that's the way it goes. Uh, Joe X said, I had this as a kid and read it to pieces until I finally saw the film in August of 77. It never bothered me then or now that the book and the movie didn't match up that closely. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it probably shouldn't. That's just one of those things. They come out there. They're from almost different sources, but... And the last comment came from Tim Price from the Right On Network. Tim said, without the novel, I did have the record which told the movie story. That was pretty awesome. I spent many a Saturday reenacting the film with my action figures while playing the record. Being before my VHS days, this was the closest I could get. Ah, good times. I know I'd read Empire's novelization, but I can't recall if I got it from the library or a friend, because I certainly don't have a copy myself. I think the comic adaptation borrowed many elements from the novel that didn't make it into the movie, like a snow monster breaking into the rebel stronghold, unless I'm senile and imagining that. A delightful what-if discussion as well. Thank you, Rebels. Uh, Tim, you're not imagining that. Um, and that was something that I, I only found out, well, much later when I read the, the comic book adaptation and then the novels. And I, I've seen like some behind-the-scenes footage. But there was an entire subplot from the original treatment and the original script of The Empire Strikes Back for like the first you know 45 minutes when the Rebels are still on the planet Hoth. Um, the Wampa that attacks Luke and drags him into that cave is not a singular creature. There's this whole subplot of Wampas being underneath the Rebel base or in caverns in the base because the Rebels did not build that base. It was an old smuggler outpost that they discovered and then kind of retrofitted and enhanced for their means. But while they're doing that, like every night, something is preying on the Tauntaun creatures. Like every morning they wake up and there's a dead Tauntaun there that's like just torn up like cattle mutilation or something like that this creepy kind of horror subplot that's going on and eventually they found you know as they're as they're trying to expand their base and dig new things they blast open this cave and there's a whole nest of these of these wampa ice monsters and the rebels have to fight them back and basically seal this door in the in the base and everything and there's the actual they, they they tried filming parts of this, but they just it, it was it was impractical. They could never get it to work and everything like that. With I mean, the Wampa that you see in the Empire Strikes Back now it was done for the special editions in the nineties, because at the time they they only had like the basic minimal like half of the creature to film in the original like nineteen eighty version. Um, but so yeah, so the, they planted the seeds for these whole like nest of Wampas earlier in the movie, and then during the evacuation of. Hall, off, the way it was supposed to go is Han is trying to get Princess Leia and Chewie and 3PO out to the Falcon, and they run down this hallway as a squad of snowtroopers are chasing them, and 3PO opens the door leading into this Wampa nest, and as he runs by, the snowtroopers kind of like, oh, check that, check that room, like, hey, there's this door open, maybe the rebels went down here, and they end up being torn to bits, like, it's an ambush, like, of all these Wampas that rip up these, uh, these Wampa, the, the snowtroopers, uh, and because of that, because 3PO did that, 
that first wave of stormtroopers is all decimated, and that gives Han and Princess Leia the chance, the time they need to get on the Falcon and, and evacuate the base before they're being captured. So this really cool. I mean, it's 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 actually a very fun and very cool subplot if you read it in the novelization or in the comic book, and you kind of if you imagine how that was meant to play out. This the seeds of again, what would have felt kind of like this creepy horror element added into the beginning with something preying on these these creatures, these animals. Uh, and then almost like a scene out of aliens or something when like they find this nest of them. Um, but for practicality, they, they could never film that. It was just, it was too much. They couldn't get the effects right. It was, it was too much. I also think it wouldn't have worked in the movie as is. You couldn't have devoted. You would have needed too money, too much screen time devoted for that for the payoff to work. And Empire Strikes Back is paced really tightly and really well, especially the first half of that movie when you're on an ice planet. And the thing about ice and snow in the movies, everything is white, everything is cold, and everything is slow and tedious. You feel your blood slowing down in those scenes. So they really had to be tight with how they paced those, those that part of the movie. Otherwise, it would have just been a crawl for the first half. And it doesn't feel that way when you watch it. But I think if they had spent another five minutes on that planet doing these weird subplots with these monsters, I think that might have been a little bit too much. Because that was like a, a genuine concern I had when, when Lucas was going back for the special editions. I was like, maybe he would refilm that stuff. It seems like something he could do now. Obviously, he could get the Wampa creature right with the new effects and, and the budget that he had. He could have redone those exact scenes and, and had that whole subplot uh, for the special editions or the DVDs or Blu-rays. But I don't think I would have wanted him to. It's just the pacing-wise, it would have really bogged down that first half of the movie. It works in prose or in the comic book adaptation because you can you can change you can do structural changes to the storytelling to affect the pacing very differently than how it is in the movie. So anyway. Anyway, that's it. Uh, thank you all for your comments. Uh, I want to thank Omar Yudin for being my guest on this episode again. We had a really long discussion. I was not expecting this episode to be nearly this long when we recorded. Um, but I feel really good about it because through all of that talk, I, I feel much, much happier about all of Star Wars in general, but in particular the Disney sequels and, and the other movies and just all of the movies in particular, everyone. Um, so I don't know when the next episode will come out. I don't know what the subject will be. Something pops up. I mean, you know, maybe by the end of by the end of Mandalorian, I should do a whole uh, episode devoted to uh, Mandalorians, both seasons one and two. I never got around to doing a full season one review, um, so I should talk about both of those seasons. There's also. I am looking forward to the... They, they were delayed. They were supposed to come out back in July, but I think they're in January now. Is the new set of books called The High Republic, which is Star Wars stories set hundreds of years before The Phantom Menace. And I'm very interested in that and see where those go. Because the first main novel is written by Charles Soule, who's a, who's a writer that I dig on the comic book front. But Anyway, yeah, that's it for this episode. So thank you for listening. Give Me Those Star Wars is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Give Me Those Star Wars. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. 
If you like this show and other shows on the Fire and Water Network, please consider donating to our Patreon page. Go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts for additional information. All music, audio clips, or quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Give Me Those Star Wars is not affiliated with Disney or Lucasfilm, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you.